Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra $0.25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a $0.25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the movie review podcast where there's an explosion. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> my name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. I don't need a nickname. And this week, we're reviewing a bunch of movies. It was a holiday weekend. We're a day later than usual. We're sorry about that, but it was a holiday weekend, and dang it. Like we wanted to hang out with our families. Well, it'd take a little time. That's all right. Yeah, I think that's okay. Uh, but so uh, we we have a lot of catching up to do, and it's an amazing set of films in some good ways and bad ways. Uh, and uh, we're going to be talking about the new releases: uh, The Forever Purge, Fear Street, nineteen ninety four. It's the first film in a new trilogy. Uh, the Tomorrow War, No Sudden Move, America, the motion picture, and God Exists. Her name is Petrunia. And, uh, yeah, that's a lot of films. It's a lot of films. A lot of Fourth of July uh, type entities there. But before we get into any of that, uh, we have the very sad responsibility to talk about uh, a filmmaker who passed away today, and or at least we got the news today. Mm-hmm. And <sighs> Richard Donner may not have like won Academy Awards for his movies, but he was an incredibly prolific, hardworking filmmaker who excelled throughout the course of his career at a wide variety of genres. Mm. And that's something that very few filmmakers um, are, are, are able to claim. That yeah, Richard Donner yeah. made arguably a masterpiece in the horror genre, in the action genre, in the superhero genre, in the Christmas genre, in the comedy genre. And the, the oh, a lot of people are talking about how much they loved uh, his western Maverick, mm. uh, which isn't considered quite a classic, but apparently it's beloved. Uh, I I love Maverick. Um, I yeah. it, the Maverick came uh, was released in 1994. It was a, a sequel to the TV series, mm-hmm. and it did feature James Garner, as it turns out, reprising his role uh, in in uh, yeah. It's a, it's a reveal that later. It's, it's a fun. It's um, the movie's like twenty five years old now. It's yeah. a fun twist though. It was originally he would seem like oh it's, oh now the original Maverick is playing a cop trying to catch Maverick, but mm-hmm. ha ha, and that was just cute. Yeah, it's a very it's a very uh, and Mel Gibson. There's a you know he works with Mel Gibson a lot. Mm. Mel Gibson has a lot of baggage. But, but Richard yeah. Donner made good films with Mel Gibson. Yeah, I he, think that's he, fair. To uh, say. Richard Donner directed all four of the Lethal Weapon films mm-hmm. uh, and. Uh, he was a very playful director. He was a very bright director. Although um, 
he started off with a few dour sex films, which I haven't seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't uh, seen his earliest films. Yeah. And uh, his first, uh, I guess, like big hit, it was his fourth film, was The Omen in 1976. Mm-hmm. Which this at the time was, af- was... This is after a, you know decades of directing on television. Yeah. Which at the time, The uh, the Omen, which is uh, mm-hmm. Gregory Peck, plays a man who doesn't realize that uh, his child may be the Antichrist. Uh the Omen came off of this wave of Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist. At the time, it was probably, I, mean, I wasn't there, but you could look at it and say, oh, here's another ripoff movie. Yeah. You know, just Hollywood doing the same shtick over and over again. The Omen kicks ass. The The Omen is, is I think, a little bit more like uh, action than it is horror. It's got mm. some good scary moments in it. It's got a lot of bombast. It's definitely yeah, a it's, Hollywood movie. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 like yeah. a a big movie. I wouldn't yeah. wouldn't put it in the same uh, camp as something like The Exorcist, which I, is a, a a much more thoughtful film. I think it's in the same genre as The Exorcist, as Rosemary's uh, yeah. Baby. But it's de- you're right. Yeah. It's definitely more the Hollywood roller coaster mm. version of that. But man, when that pane of glass flies off the truck. Mm. And uh, meets the wrong end of David Warner. Uh, that is an amazing scene. And that Jerry Goldsmith score. Uh, oh, Jerry yeah. Goldsmith, one of the greatest composers who ever lived. Like, mm. at least in, in terms <laughs> of the film industry. Holy crap, every Jerry Goldsmith score, every note a painting. Mm. And uh, that's a, an expression I'm just going to start using from now on. But it's so weird throughout his entire career, the only Academy Award he ever won was for The Omen. He deserved it for The Omen. Mm. Probably deserved it for about a half dozen other things, too. But uh, <laughs> the, that's The Omen's a fun film. Yeah, uh, but I feel like Richard Donner finally like because he, he works on a lot of TV, and I want to say right now, if you haven't seen Richard Donner's episodes of The Twilight Zone, you're missing out on some classics. Uh, Terror at twenty thousand feet, uh, Nightmare at twenty thousand. Excuse feet. me, Nightmare at twenty thousand. Nightmare at twenty thousand feet, a classic episode stars William Shatner as a man who is on an airplane. He's got the window seat right next to the wing, and every time he looks out on the wing, he sees a man on the wing of the plane, and nobody believes him because every time he points it out, the man's gone. And the man is trying to destroy the plane and bring it down and kill everybody. And he's got the choice to either not look crazy or save everyone on the plane. Incredible. He did a great one called, was it the Jeopardy Room? Was that the one with Martin Landau? Uh, yeah, I haven't seen that one. But That's yeah, a good yeah. one. It's, it's one of the few Twilight Zone episodes where there isn't a sci-fi or fantasy element. It's just pure suspense. Martin Landau plays, it's been a while since I've seen it. I think he plays like a political dissident, like someone who's like, you know, against, he's a Russian who's against the Soviet Union. And um, an assassin has been unleashed to take out Martin Landau, but the assassin considers himself a bit of an artist. So his plan is, I'm going to put Martin Landau in a room. I'm going to be looking at the room from across the street. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to call, I'm going to, I'm going to tell Martin Landau, here's, here's what's going on. Something in this room is connected to a bomb. And if you touch it, it will explode. Bye! (laughs) (laughs) It's so fucking suspenseful just seeing Martin Landau just like desperately trying to like poke things, like trying to see what's the thing that's going to kill him. And oh, it's good. Really just masterclass in suspense in like 20 minutes. It's it's fully phenomenal. Um, But Richard Donner achieved, I think... You know, probably what some people consider the apex of his career was Superman the movie. Yeah, which uh, was the film he made after The Omen. That was in 78. A bit and, of a gap uh, there, actually. Kind of weird, but yeah. Uh, well, it took two years to make it, so it was just jumped straight was into Was The Omen on 1976? 76, yeah. Shit, I could have sworn it was a little, uh, later, a little earlier. Okay, my bad. Uh, I was wrong. But, but yeah, uh, not, that, not so weird at all, then. 
But yeah, uh, he he was asked to make a sort of a special effects bonanza. Now, in 1976, uh, superheroes weren't the sure bet that they are today. Yeah. And uh, because it took such complicated special effects to realize them, these were people who wore loud costumes and had superpowers and did extraordinary things. And uh, it was difficult to tell that sort of story and give it the sort of visual panache that it requires. Especially when uh, visual effects yeah. can't make that stuff look plausible or good, which is one of the reasons yeah. why the, the, uh, the, the tagline for Superman in the was, movie was, you will believe a man can fly. And uh, Richard Donner so ably handled the special effects, but even more so gave a sense of grandeur mm-hmm. to the extraordinary things that Superman could do mm-hmm. that, uh, yeah, we believed it. And it's to this day, I think, uh, one of the best, if not the single best of all superhero movies. I hear a lot of people say that. I, I personally don't think so, but, mm. and I've, I've my gripes with stuff like Otis, yeah. and particularly Otis in the second half of the movie, I'm just not a fan. I've talked about that to death and now it's not the time because the reason why I feel comfortable speaking so openly about my critiques about that movie is because the movie is so universally beloved, mm. it can handle some criticism. Yeah, and sure. right now I want to talk about all the stuff that works. Because as much as the second half of the movie has some flaws with me, the first half is perfect. Like <laughs> all it's the stuff with perfect. young Superman. Well, and and all the stuff on Krypton where everything's like weird and blown out and crystalline, and like he isn't afraid to make Krypton look alien, mm-hmm. like truly bizarre. And then you know Superman comes to Earth, and it's just this complete Halcyon John Ford movie of just growing up along like the vast fields of wheat or whatever the fuck they grew on the Kent farm, and. Did they ever it's, say what the Kents grew? I want to say it's corn, but I could be wrong. Right, Kansas. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, very plausible. I, I, that's probably that's a Schmodown question. Probably, I don't know. Um, but like all of that stuff with Superman, like uh, being, you know, his relationship with his father and the death of his father and finding himself and accepting his path to becoming not just more than just a person, but a paragon. Mm-hmm. All of that stuff is absolutely beautiful. John Williams' score is absolutely beautiful. Uh, It's really important to remember just how easy it was to write off a character like Superman cinematically and how Mm. Richard Donner never Mm. winked, never apologized. Mm. He sold, he, he had absolute faith in the original material. And, and I think this is something that is across the board, Richard Donner was amazing at, Always got the right cast. <laughs> Christopher Reeve was not a star. No, he, he, he was not a big star. People didn't know who he was. He, he found, uh, and, and yeah, a lot of people really, really like Christopher Reeve. I think he's great in that role. He's Margot Cato is really great. Um, and yeah, Gene Hackman is the villain. Mm-hmm. It's just great. And uh, Can't go wrong with that. Of course, top build was Marlon Brando. <laughs> Marlon Brando had a great agent. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit, Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando, who played, who played Jor-El, Superman's father, who dies at the beginning of the movie he's and like, shows he's up in a cameo a little bit later. He's in like six minutes. He's top build. Holy shit. Well, and, you know, he didn't even learn his lines. There's actually You can actually see like him like reading it. Oh, God. Well, the, the, <laughs> if, so if, you know, if you know anything about Brando, he actually was notoriously bad about remembering his lines. I know, and um, funny. From from what I understand in The Godfather, yeah. you know, there's all those long pauses he takes where he kind of like rubs his chin or like rubs his fingers yeah. together. It's because he had an earpiece and someone oh. was giving him the lines. Oh no 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 no! You, I've seen pictures on the set, mm. like literally. And this is this is they didn't hide this. There's pictures on the set. Uh, there's a scene where Marlon Brando was talking to Robert Duvall, who played uh, his mm. consigliere, his lawyer, uh, and in the frame, all you see is like their shoulders and head. Mm. 
Uh, but in the on set pictures, you see that Robert Duvall it's is like, wearing the screenplay on his shirt. <laughs> He's actually got the lines written on a piece of paper so Marlon Brando can look right. down and get his lines. So, yeah, it, it, it doesn't surprise me that he had trouble learning his lines on the set of no, it's Superman. Just, it's just funny to me. Uh, um, he, uh, Richard Donner also... Uh, it was taken away from him, but he also did Superman 2. Richard yeah. Lester is the credited director, and they eventually recut it uh, closer to what he had shot yeah, in like 2006. He didn't get to shoot everything he wanted to, mm-hmm. but I will take the Pepsi challenge. I think the Richard Donner cut of Superman 2 is a lot better than the Richard Lester cut. Yeah, and I like I, Richard Lester as a filmmaker. He just had a goofier uh, idea of what Superman was. Well, he, he, was, he, he was a more comedic filmmaker, and sure. he added a lot more humor to the film. And I think... That's not illegitimate, but uh, no. you know it's a, a, certainly a much different it's, film. Yeah, it's just not what Richard Donner was going for. Um, he also um, the '80s was an interesting decade for him because he did Lady Hawk, which is this very 1980s fantasy film uh, starring Matthew Broderick, Rucker Hauer, and Michelle Pfeiffer. Uh, Matthew Broderick plays a thief who stumbles in across uh, a, a magical curse. Rucker Hauer uh, plays a noble knight who is cursed every night to become a wolf. And during the day, he has a hawk as his pet. But it, and at night, the hawk becomes Michelle Pfeiffer. They were in love, and they were cursed to always can, be together, but always be apart. They can never Great be human setup. at the same time. Great yeah. setup. <laughs> Weird movie, because it's so 80s. I think Alan Parsons projected the music. <laughs> like, so it's, it, yeah, it, it's, it feels it's really dated. I've, I've seen Lady Hawk, but it's been quite a while. It feels really classical, but it also feels really dated. It's also one of those things where Matthew Broderick is kind of like playing a modern character. His, like, his performance is very yeah, modern, yeah. so he kind of stand, stands out a little. I like the movie a lot. It mm. just doesn't feel as classical as it should. Well, he, he was really good about working with comedians uh, yeah. because uh, I'm kind of surprised that all of the comedic stuff in Superman 2 is Richard Lester's doing and not his. Well, because he, I'm sure he some be, of it yeah. was because like Superman, the movie's pretty funny. But he, he made uh, the movie The Toy with Richard Pryor, uh, which um, is... Problematic. Well, it it doesn't address directly its racist connotations. Yeah, that's uh, why it's really but problematic. It's, but it but it does address them, just in a, a it doesn't really handle it in a very savvy way. The toy is, it came out in 1982. It's about yeah. a rich white boy who uh, whose uh, father wants to spoil him by getting him whatever toy he wants. They send him to a toy company where Richard Pryor works, and the boy wants to buy Richard Pryor. Yeah, and there's uh, a lot on that. And yeah, there's a so, lot on that. And, and the, you know, they, they kind of joke about it, but it doesn't become like the theme of the movie. It's actually more about how this boy needs like a father figure in his life. Yeah. Um, he did. Yeah. We, we mentioned Lethal Weapon, which was an enormous hit when it mm-hmm. came out in 1987. Mm-hmm. Completely uh, like re like the buddy cop mm-hmm. genre had, had been around for about a decade, but I feel like mm-hmm. Lethal Weapon per- made it permanent. Well, uh, it, it sort of like broke back into the mainstream with uh, Walter Hill's 48 Hours. Yeah. Uh, and Lethal Weapon was de- like straight out of that tradition. And it, yeah, both with those two films, it was sort of re solidified again. Yeah. Another uh, one just, where chemistry was a lot of it. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, it, 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 yeah. Mel Gibson and Danny Glover are the, the two mismatched cops in that one. Uh, it's a Christmas film. It uh, deals with mental illness uh, in a, a pretty dark and frank sort of way that I didn't expect when I first watched yeah, it. Yeah, a lot of people remember the Lethal Weapon movies as being kind of fun and flip. No, that's three and four. One and two mm. are pretty dour, actually. Yeah, and they're yeah. very good. They're very good films. Mm. Uh, Lethal Weapon 2 dealt with apartheid like pretty directly, mm. and I appreciated that. There's a great scene where um, Danny Glover 
goes to like an embassy and like he's it's very fiercely political about it. Um, in between Lethal Weapon one and two, he made Scrooge. <laughs> Scrooge is Scrooge at the time. I remember people thinking to himself, "Is this like too dark for a Christmas movie?" And then like a couple of years later, everyone kind of agreed it's one of the best Christmas movies ever made. Well, uh, it's, it's Scrooge. It's it's an Ebenezer Scrooge story. It's mm-hmm. a modern Christmas Carol, but yeah. instead of uh, Scrooge, instead of being a uh, uh, a financier or an accountant. He's a TV producer. Yeah. Uh, and he's played by Bill Murray in this one. Uh, and what's, I think his name is like Frank Cross or something. That I think you're right. Yeah. Like Scrooge. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he's visited by a ghost of a dead partner. He's visited yeah, by Cross, the three ghosts. Ball. Hey, there good we ball. go. I won a schmoda on there that time. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it it was, I think it was initially supposed to be much more of a horror movie. And if you listen yeah. to Danny Elfman's score, you oh, can it's, tell. That's a great horror yeah. score right there. And like the and all of the ghosts, like hmm. the two, the ghosts of Christmas past, the ghosts of Christmas present are funny ghosts, but they're also really violent ghosts. Hmm. And the ghost of, uh, you know, Jacob Marley, uh, who was like his old uh, boss at yeah. the movie, at the TV studio, and the ghost of future, hmm. terrifying. Yeah. Like scary. Scary fucking yeah, Mar- goat. Not afraid to be a ghost Mar- story. Yeah, Marley's movie. like a, a rotten mummy in yeah. this version, oh. and, and, and this is the Christmas future. Is it, it's death. But there's, yeah, there's this terrifying moment where Marley like picks up Bill Murray by like his lapels, mm. and then like yeah, pushes, pushes him, him out, of, glass, out of a window, yeah. and he's just like hanging the, there like well, hundred stories above New York. The glass doesn't break. Yeah. It sort of like like wobbles a little bit, like this aperture, and he just yeah. sort of like <sighs> like passes through the glass. I saw that in a theater when it came out. That's yeah. you know, I was like seven. That movie scared the shit out of me. <laughs> it's, it's scary. Great, though. Yeah. It's great. Uh, we mentioned uh, we skipped over a movie he made in 1985, same year as Lady Hawk, uh-huh. The Goonies. The Goonies <laughs> is a film that uh, a lot of people. Have a lot of nostalgia for. They grew People up with the Goonies. Are, uh, the same age as the characters really, really love the Goonies. And it's another the, one where all the child actors are really good. I think casting yeah, is a the, big, big part of that movie. Yeah, all, all of the characters are really wonderful, and it follows in that sort of E.T. tradition. It's like the <coughs> Amblin me. entertainment of of kids being kind of messy. It, you know, they yeah. live in messy rooms. They talk over each other. Yeah, they they're yell. Not, yeah, they, they scheme. They they're swear. Actually, uh, yeah, a lot of them are kind of like little jerks. Yeah. But you know the way. But in the way little kids are. Yeah. Uh, they're they're they don't talk like little adults, nor are they you know happy little moppets. Uh, yeah. They feel like you're real rough and tumble little kids, and I appreciate that yeah. detail about the Goonies. Um, and, they, and they go off on a big the, adventure yeah, and, to find pirate treasure in order to save yeah. their parents' neighborhood. Well, and and of course, it's all echoing with uh, bad things that are going on in their home lives. Yeah. Uh, it, it's quite a good film. I think it's been fetishized with an inch of its life. Mm. Um, talked about as if it's like sort of the be all and end all of cinema. Mm. It's still quite good, and and I, Richard Donner has 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 done some. Uh, a lot of good character work in that movie. I, I think I think there are issues with Goonies that uh, are uh, not the, unlike my issues with Superman the movie, which is to say, so much of it's great mm. that the things that aren't great kind of piss me off because I want to love the whole movie. Uh, and I feel that there are some absolute ethnic stereotypes that are being presented in Goonies mm. that are, if not borderline, then outright offensive. Um, there's a lot of positivity to it as well, but there's a, just a lot of stereotypes that are just leaned yeah, into yeah. really, really hard, and there's no consideration mm-hmm. for the fact that those are stereotypes. That ticks me off. Also, uh, the the once again, much like Superman the movie, a lot of jokes at the expense of fat people. 
Like just yeah, unapologetic, the, uh, like oh, isn't it funny that this a, kid is fat? There's a fat kid whose nickname is Chunk, and yeah. uh, he gets yeah, to do the truffle shuffle, yeah. and he's it's miserable and he hates doing it, but it's the only way his other friends will talk to him sometimes. And it's just made me really sad watching mm. it. And I didn't like the heroes the way I'm supposed to. And I know a lot of other people didn't care about this, but I, mm. a fat kid, was hurt. So I want to like so much of this movie, but it's one of those things where right. product of its time, if you want to call it that, or just people weren't really thinking about it and they were just being jerks without thinking about it. Right. Or maybe they were, I don't know. But like that movie has always been held back for me because right. I, like, again, I love all the pirate traps. <laughs> I love the production design. Right. There's so much cool stuff in that movie. But man, the, 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 the betray- and, um, and the betrayal of, uh, oh, what's the name of the sloth? Mm, not sure sloth is all that cool portrayal either but anyway um he directed a film in 1992 called radio flyer which has a weird which i haven't seen this is another one about kids dealing with trouble at home and like Mm -hmm. sort of escaping into imagination it's weird though because so many of richard donner's films like that dealt with that kind of stuff dealt with fantasy like directly like oh we're gonna go on a pirate treasure hunt or whatever uh radio flyer was mostly the abuse it's about two kids. Their father is an alcoholic, is alcoholic and abusive. And the fantasy element only comes in at the end. And you're not 100% sure if it's real or not. And I haven't watched that film in a long time. I remember responding to it a lot better than most other people. I know a lot of people thought it was like mawkish. But uh-huh. there weren't a lot of movies that were catering to kids. It was like presented as a kid's movie in a lot of respects. It wasn't like a movie for adults. Uh, that were directly saying what they were about when they were talking about parental abuse. And as a result, I was actually kind of blown away by it. Like, whoa, we're actually just talking about it? Well, shit. Okay. And it was really harrowing to watch that movie. So I like that movie more than most, but I haven't revisited it in a long Mm. time. Uh, Then was Maverick. It it, it might be Mm. his most, his like... Mm. Like his most serious drama film. He tended to make these yeah. really uh, bold, exciting adventure pictures and genre yeah. films. Yeah, again, I haven't seen uh, his first three, so maybe yeah. those are more like that. But yeah, he mostly did mm. uh, a genre of pictures. He did Maverick right after that. Mm. Maverick is a very slick, very fun Western. It's it's just so well done. Jodie Foster is hilarious a, in that movie. She didn't get yeah. to play like the femme fatale very often, but she nailed it. She was a femme fatale and a comedic lead. Yeah. Like, she is great. She's uh, in so this good. Movie. She's really really good. And she has yeah. great, you know think what you will of him as a person. There's a mm-hmm. reason why Mel Gibson did become a big star. He does mm-hmm. have a good chemistry with Jodie Foster in he that does. one. Uh, he did, after that, he did uh, Assassins. Mm-hmm. which is a film that was written by the Wachowskis before they became like big filmmakers. Uh, and it is about Sylvester Stallone as an aging assassin who is being targeted by a younger assassin played by Antonio Banderas. Uh, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. The, the, yeah, Antonio um, Banderas actually does a lot of the heavy lifting of that movie for me. He's, he's yeah. just, it, that was peak Banderas at the time. Uh, he, uh, he he finished up his career with films that uh, weren't weren't as highly acclaimed. He didn't, no. and, and his last film was way back in two thousand six. Yeah, he did *Lethal uh, Weapon* four, which is fun, but again, there's a lot of racial stereotyping in that movie, and it sucks. Uh, he did introduce uh, uh, Jet Li to the American film industry with that that film. Ad- admittedly, mm-hmm. thank you for that, but the betrayal of it was uh, like of, Chinese of, gangsters. Yeah, it's you know, really or, or really broad, regressive. That, movie. that, that yeah. sucks. He did a movie called *Timeline*, which I've never been able to sit through. <laughs> it just was like it's based on a Michael Crichton novel. It was this but, huge yeah. budgeted time travel thing, and I'm watching. I'm like, 
Uh, and then he did 16 Blocks, and it ended up being his last movie in 2006. Uh, I will go to bat for 16 Blocks. I actually think 16 Blocks isn't that bad. Uh, Bruce Willis plays a cop who has to escort a witness to uh, a trial. Mm. It's only 16 Blocks. It's supposed to be a cushy gig. He's it's, kind of like an out-of-it cop who's like I, I mean, throwing his career away. And most deaf, right? It's most deaf, yeah. yeah. And playing a, plays it kind of weird. Uh, I've been a while since I've seen it. Uh, but I remember thinking to myself, this is a very nimble action movie. And if this had been like Die Hard 4, it would have been better than Die Hard 4. <laughs> like, it was actually yeah, like yeah. pretty good. Uh, and then he, and then he, you know, he he basically retired, and he was gonna come back. He's not, he was ninety one. He was gonna come back and direct Lethal Weapon five. Oh my goodness! It was that, that was the plan. They were yeah. working on it, and obviously that's not gonna happen. At least not with Richard Donner. Mm. Uh, but what a fucking career! Yeah. A couple of duds, but holy yeah. shit, that's that, an amazing career. Yeah, and additionally, he did have his own production company. He brought us the Free Willy movies. Yeah. Uh, he uh, executive produced the Lost Boys, a Joel Schumacher film yep. that has a, a lot of fans. I was fond of his film Delirious that he executive produced. Oh, the John Candy, the John movie? Candy that's movie. a fun film about, yeah. a, about a soap opera writer who gets hit in the head and wakes up inside his own soap yep. opera. Uh, he uh, um, worked on the Tales from the Crypt. Yeah, he was, uh, he was uh, one of the, the dream yeah. team that put together Tales from the Crypt along with Zemeckis and mm-hmm. Walter Hill. Uh, and he even directed a couple of the episodes of yeah. Tales from the Crypt, uh, which is one of my favorite TV shows. One of the best. Um, but yeah, he... I haven't seen all of his TV because he did scads of it. If you no, look over yeah, his filmography, uh, before he even got into film, he, he spent like the late fifties and throughout all onward, just doing all of this. Yeah, he, did, he did wagon train mm-hmm. route 66, have gun, will travel, uh, combat twilight zone. We already mentioned the man from mm-hmm. uncle Gilligan's Island. Get smart. The fugitive wild, wild west. He did six episodes of the banana splits. <laughs> that is not even a good show. Like he, he what an incredible. Mm. I, I'm sorry. Listen, we need to move on because we could just go on for forever. Because mm. Richard Donner had that incredible career. Holy mm. shit! What an incredible titan of of filmmaking. Uh, I've never heard people say unkind words about him. Maybe they have, and I haven't heard it. But <laughs> all the stories I'm hearing, everyone's saying Richard Donner was a joy to work with and really supportive of other filmmakers. Yes, a sweet, a yeah. sweet, warm guy no. who understood not just the craft, yeah. but but the humanity and the character yeah. that he was putting in. Like I think he made, I think he clearly had some issues with stereotyping throughout his career, but a lot of filmmakers do. You can you can throw that at almost any of his contemporaries. Uh, I'm not forgiving it, but I don't. I think the there's a lot of good he did that had nothing to do with that. Incredible filmmaker. If you're unfamiliar with some of his films, uh, I'd actually be a little surprised <laughs> because he made so many gigantic films. But if there's some of that stuff that we've talked about that we're fond of that you haven't missed, uh, that you've happened to have missed, please check him out. All right. There's some good films in there. Um, anyway, we should move on. Rest in peace. Rest in peace, Richard Donner. Holy crap. Do you have a favorite? Uh... I mean, it's it's hard to pick with with it someone is. like Richard Donner. I I, I, lo- I do love his Superman. Yeah, uh, I I watched Maverick incessantly when as a teen <laughs> when it came out in 1994. It's one of the only westerns that I really kind of latched onto. Uh, it, it's a western that doesn't have any sci-fi elements to it that I actually like. <laughs> what? Holy I, shit! I know. Imagine that. It's just about gambling and stuff that was. I mean, it's really anachronistic. There's a lot of you know, just sort of yeah. hip talking modern characters in the old west. Yeah, but, but they're not. They're not in your face about yeah. it. It's just got a modern sense of humor. Mm. Yeah, um, that's a fun one. For me, it's Scrooge. 
Yeah, I, I, I think I Scrooge, Scrooge, is, too. Scrooge is great. Yeah. Scrooge isn't afraid to be dark, but it and because it's dark, it earns its happy ending better than I think some of the other Christmas carols do. Mm. Um, Bill Murray's perfect in it. Special effects are amazing. Yeah, Bill, the whole Bill, cast is great. It's re- and it's really funny. He's not known as a comedic director. Scrooge is funny as hell. Mm. Is really really good. Well, Scrooge is funny. Uh, you know, the Goonies is ostensibly well, a comedy. It's ostensibly Maverick a comedy. is a comedy as these, well. These are know? movies that have comedic elements, but there are also other elements that a lot of people tend to focus on. Like it's a western or it's an mm-hmm. adventure. Uh, Scrooge is a horror comedy, and it's a really good one. <laughs> and I just I love it very very much. So um, again, rest in peace, Richard Donner. Let's move on and review. Some new films. Um, let's talk about, I think, the biggest theatrical release of the week, and I just want to um, dive right in because only I saw this, mm. was The Forever Purge. Which is the fifth Purge film. Uh, the fifth Purge film. There was also a TV series. I haven't seen the TV series, but I have seen all the other uh, Purge movies. Uh, the Purge movies were the creation of a filmmaker named James DeMonico, uh, and they've been on an interesting path. And I think they're one of the more interesting horror franchises of the 21st century. One of the best, maybe, maybe not, but interesting. Uh, and they take place in a near future where an ultra, like, extremist conservative party has taken over the United States government. And they have enacted a piece of legislation that makes the purge a national holiday. And the way the purge works is thus. For 12 hours every year, all crime in America is legal, including murder. And the idea, at least on paper, is to acknowledge that mankind is um, is monstrous and has really ugly desires. And if we all just indulge in them once a year, then the rest of the year we won't have any problems, right? Like, oh, I have all of these desires to do horrible things. We'll do them on purge night mm. and then don't do it the rest of the time. And, yeah, and then everything will be fine, the, right? The first film argues that uh, it, it kind of works. And the first film was actually really bad. It's rare that, that a, a film series open with its worst chapter. I, I have thoughts uh, on it, but I but agree it, it's, it's a bad introduction to the series. It, it's, yeah. it's like it introduced an interesting concept, and it do, did sort of like brush very gently against the politics and that the yeah. rich people can defend themselves and the poor can't, but we never see the poor in that movie. Th- that's the problem with that movie. Uh, the first film is all about the, a rich family mm-hmm. led by uh, Ethan Hawke and Lena Headey, and their whole thing is they've gotten rich selling security systems on for, for Purge Night. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden the purge might come into their house and it feels like that's the lowest budgeted version they could do. This is back when Blumhouse was synonymous with $1 million horror movies set inside a house. Yeah. So it, it's, and so that's it's, like the cheapest it's a version pretty, they could it's do. It's a pretty, uh, functionally, it's a pretty lackluster yeah. home invasion film, but yeah. it, it and then they see the error of their ways, but like yeah. the promise was always, well, let's go outside and see what's going on out there. And that's what we got for the purge anarchy and the purge election night. Or election year. Oh, sorry, election year. Yeah. Sorry. And those movies are pretty fucking great. Yeah. Pur- Purge Anarchy is the same thing on a bigger scale. It deals with the, po- the politics a little bit more directly. Yeah. We get to spend time with impoverished people who are actually in greater danger. People are coming in from out of town to murder them. Yeah. We get to see like uh, people pulling up in tanks and shit. What we start to see uh, is that the, the Purge night, and in the first Purge, it seemed like all of a sudden the rich white people realized that the system that makes them feel safe is actually extremely unfair. And it only takes a minor twist of fate to that, have that turn on them. So it's about like the privileged becoming woke, basically. And the second film was about basically the poor just desperately trying to survive in a system that was designed to kill them, literally. Because mm-hmm. that's the film where we start realizing that this is 
an attempt to keep the population down and an attempt to weaponize American hatred of people who are, uh, um, well, other, mm. whether it be uh, uh, the, the impoverished or people of people of color. Yeah, uh, the, and these the, are the people the who are being... Extre- it, yeah, an yeah. extreme white-wing government has uh, yeah. always used a, yeah. a, a villain and other of some yeah. kind to, to, to this is who they drive policy and to, yeah, to yeah. demonize. And this is one where uh, they are turned into literal victims. Yeah, Anarchy is super intense. It's mm. really, really good. Uh, election year is the one where all of a sudden there is one liberal presidential candidate who might actually be able to get elected and end purge night. And as a result, uh, the new founding fathers have uh, decided to make just this once. <laughs> Political assassination is now yeah. also legal. Yeah, there always... Which wasn't before, yeah, you see. There's always a few things that you couldn't do. Like, you couldn't get a nuclear bomb. Like, I don't know mm. how they would have stopped you, but that was the idea. There's a few limitations, and one of which was you couldn't, like, kill a politician. In election night, they said, just this once, it's okay. And so everyone who liked Purge Night and liked being a homicidal maniac one night a year basically had all the motivation in the world to just kill that one person. Hmm. It's very effective. It's very in your face about its political message. And the end of that movie is was really kind of interesting. It came out in 2016, quite the year politically. And uh, it presented the idea that uh, if, after this sort of extreme uh, conservative movement had uh, normalized hateful rhetoric and tried to uh, build a base upon uh, Mm. violence and uh, ignorance and racism, uh, that if all of a sudden uh, we elected people who might put a stop to that, the first reaction would be insurrection. Mm. That's the end of election night, uh, of election year. And uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, look, look, that's the, a hell of a film. The, the, the tagline for, for uh, the purge election year was keep America great. Yeah. So they were tapping into something. The, the next film was called The First Purge, which is an origin story of the purge. I suspect the original uh, plan was to move on from that like sort of like revolution mm. cliffhanger. But when Trump got elected, it felt like maybe that was the wrong path. Uh, and they decided to go with, how did this happen in the first place? Because <laughs> maybe we're there. Like how do, yeah, how do, we, how do we start? The, the, uh, the idea is uh, crime has gotten so bad uh, and people are so impoverished and so desperate that uh, this is like an extreme measure that the politicians must take. So it's... Yeah. It takes place in a near future where things have gotten really bad, and not because of the purge, but this was sort of like the dumb reaction how, that those how, in charge uh, yeah. decided to what bizarre control. What, what a specific set of circumstances could have led to the purge seeming like a logical response for some people to make. It was never logical, mm. but enough that they could sell it. And it's all about, okay, so we're going to have a purge night. It's going to be on Staten Island. or going to be this one place. And we're going to see how it goes. And it's fascinating to watch like people like at computer screens watching like nobody's killing anybody. What's mm. going on? I thought was, they would kill everybody. And it turns a, out they're just having a big block party. They're, have, they're, they're getting <laughs> drunk. They're having a getting, big block party. A lot of people doing have drugs like, and shit. promised not to, not to do any sort of violent crimes. Uh, there's a scene where like a couple's just 
going at it at the on the hood of their car. It's like yeah. th- like that's as naughty as it gets. Like misdemeanor but, uh, shit, you know? Like yeah. But those in charge of the purge need this to work, so they've already at the start seeded in uh, murderers. Yeah. Like who will they're like being even yeah. shipped in from out of town to start the violence. Exactly. And so they and uh, that's actually that's actually a pretty strong film, actually. I like that movie quite a yeah. bit. I, I think it, it I think it's a, a, a dip after election year. I think it's fair uh, to say it's a dip after election year, but I think it's premise and its purpose are important. I think they work. I think it's a little slow to get going, but once it does, it's really great. The idea is it's tapping into like uh, unexpressed uh, racial wrath. Yeah. uh, uh, That's sort of what's being exploited by the the politicians within the movie, which means uh, what's to stop people from, uh, from purging at the end of that 12 hours. It's yeah. just, it's just take social faith contract. that you're supposed to do it. It's a social contract. Yeah. That's all we, it, a lot of our uh, system of morality and ethics is a social contract. We all agree mm-hmm. to a general system of ethics or a general system of morality or both. Um, and that's the premise of the forever purge. Uh, the forever purge uh, takes place actually about four years after election year. Uh, the liberal has been voted out of office. The new founding fathers are back. And they have, first thing they did, the purge is back. Everyone's like, yay! Mm. So this film takes place uh, in Texas. Uh, we're going to be focusing a lot on immigration. Uh, and uh, a, a handful of immigrants are working in, uh, one, one of, uh, woman's working in a butcher shop, another uh, a man's working on a ranch for a rich white family uh, led by uh, Will Patton and Josh... Lucas. Okay. Um, actually, let me get the whole cast here because everyone's good and they deserve a, they deserve their props. Hang on. Um, so Will Patton's the patriarch. Josh Lucas uh, is uh, the son who seems to have some unexplored racial tensions. Uh, Anna de la Reguera uh, plays uh, a woman who has only recently immigrated to America. Uh, her, I think, husband, uh, Tina Cuerta. Uh, he's working at the ranch and Purge Night is coming. And as you might imagine at this part of the world, Purge Night is seen as basically an excuse to kill undocumented immigrants. Uh, it's an ugly portrayal of America and it's probably mm-hmm. not entirely unfair. Um, but uh, what happens is they, everyone holds up for the night Purge night comes and goes and they come out and their bodies in the street, but seems like we made it through another year. It's like Christmas in uh, uh, Futurama. Like, we made it through Christmas, thank God. Uh, And then people are still killing each other. And that's when we find out that there has been, like, a movement, like, online, uh, announcing that this will be called, this will be the Forever Purge. If we can break a social contract and all crime can be legal for one night, Mm. why have a social contract? So they've decided that from now on, this is what America is. America is people, almost entirely white people who are heavily armed, killing anybody who represents something they don't like. Mm-hmm. And as a result, our heroes have a very short amount of time before Mexico, who immediately says, we will take any American refugees who want out, but we are closing our borders in six hours. Mm-hmm. They have to get to the border. Uh, and uh, the surviving members of the Rich White family that was taking care of them, including Josh Lucas, uh, go with them mm. because the purge is fucking awful. Um, 
So here's where finally everyone just says everything out loud. Here is where everyone, it's basically just America is a country that is founded on hatred and violence. And the idea that we're not mm. has always been a fantasy. And we're finally just pulling off the rose colored glasses. And we see basically there, there's a moment in, in the purge where we kind of get like a big look at America. And the general sense is that it's all on fire. Mm. Uh, it's not a subtle film. It has never been a subtle film. There's apparently some people who have been online saying, oh no, The Purge is political now. What the <laughs> fuck? Political from frame one. It's the most political movie yeah. franchises I've ever seen. Like, it's it's like more political than Billy Jack. How did you do that? <laughs> like, holy shit. Like, it's absurdly political. It is absolutely pointed in its, in its judgment of America. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what it's best at. I think it's using the horror genre... And the sci-fi genre, in a mild way, there's no mm. tech, but, you know, it's in the near future, uh, to illustrate our reality, which is that we are a country that has a long history of violence and social tension across all divides. Yeah. And there's really very little holding this country back from being a dystopia. And it's worth fighting for, and we're going to keep fighting for it, but this is the nightmare. The Purge is the nightmare. Mm. And seeing it unfold in reality, in like on screen, is undeniably thrilling. Like it's 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 terrifying, but it's also like just un like it's full of danger and debacle and hedonism and hatred, and it's hard to take your eyes off of it. Uh and mostly this movie's good. Honestly, I think they're all pretty good. I think the biggest problem with the Purge one is that it was the first film. Mm. I think if after if think if that if that would have been the one where it's like ah people are less interested in the purge movies what's a cheap one we can do before people lose all interest maybe the plot of the first purge might have been okay yeah. but they're all pretty smart and pretty pointed and I think this one definitely does a lot of things right the cast mm. is really really good um there's also some things that I think it whiffs a little bit like there's a bit where uh Tina Cuerta uh, confronts Josh Lucas about how you've been treating me on the ranch with like a lot of like racism. You've been kind mm. of an asshole to me this whole time. And Josh Lucas says, it's, it's a stunning statement. He says, I'm not racist. I just think everyone should keep to their own people. <laughs> and which is which, so is, that's, which so, is which is racism which is which is a long way of saying i'm racist yeah you're yeah. racist in a particular way but you're racist and the movie just sort of lets that sit hmm. which is weird for such a confrontational film i don't need you know the other guy to go on like a long speech but maybe a fuck you to that would have been appropriate it's hmm. just sort of letting that sit there as though that might be a halfway reasonable sentiment which is odd like there's a couple of times where it just feels like we're just being so upfront about everything that every once in a while when you pull a punch, mm. it's weird. Uh, but that's not most of the movie, to be fair. And I think uh, most of the movie is a very effective thriller with obviously a lot of obvious messaging. Uh, and I like this franchise. I'm a sucker for this franchise. <laughs> I think this franchise uh, does I, gets it mostly right. Yeah, I, I, I 
I enjoy it too. I'm very fond. Again, I, I think the first film is a bit of a stinker. Sure. But it had a good enough idea that it can carry into bigger, more interesting movies. I like that it is addressing a lot of the ugly underbelly of what has been guiding American principles since the start. Yeah. Um, I would love to see like a historical uh, uh, historical fiction version of The Purge, like The Purge Revolutionary War style. Oh, like, like something like a documentary or something? Like, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's like, and the, this is something that was set back in, uh, when the first Purge was first enacted yeah. back in like 1790 if or something. If they ever did a novelization you know, of the series, that would be a great approach. Yeah. yeah like, like do it as like a nonfiction book. Uh, they, I guess yeah. they couldn't do that because they already did the first Purge, which is still the future uh, from now, but it's... Well, whatever, it's, just, you just yeah. have it, the book was written in 1860 or something. You know, like have, yeah. get a little get a little perspective on it. Like, uh, here, here, the here's the real origin of the purge, and you yeah. can re- you know really delve into. Well, there's a lot also of, uh, there's the so much we haven't really American seen. Political history. We've never seen like what's going on at the White House in these things. That mm. could be a perspective that could be effective in a book or something yeah. like that. We can actually see like here's what President Bonald Bump. <laughs> had to say about the first purge when it was, I don't know who they said the president was in these things, but like we all know, but it's like, yeah, I feel like there's, there's a lot to explore here. Um, I never, again, maybe some of it's explored in the TV series. I didn't really watch it. Um, but, uh, yeah, these movies are really interesting and this is, uh, mostly, I, I don't think it's the best one. I still think that's uh, election year followed by anarchy, but no, 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 I think first purge actually, I think it gets it mostly right. But like the, the, mm. the, the those three are all good. Uh, and this one's just like a little less than that, but as like a as like an ending, not just to the franchise, but to America, it's actually pretty good. So I mostly like it. I, I definitely think it's worth watching if you haven't had a chance yet. Um, let's move on and let's talk about uh, the big film on Netflix this week, hmm. uh, Fear Street, nineteen ninety four. Uh, Fear Street 1994 uh, is the first of a planned series of three films that are going to be released a week apart from one another. This is part one. Part two is going to be set in 1978. Mm-hmm. They're going to uh, go and, backwards and, in yeah, time. And I forgot when the third it's one is. 1666. Uh, okay. 1666. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, this one called, uh, it, and it's based on a series of novels by R.L. Stein, the author who wrote Goosebumps. Yeah, these and from are what I under- a bit I'd, darker in their implement, I think. Okay. I, I'm not familiar with R.L. Stein's work beyond the Goosebumps movies. Uh, <laughs> I read a few yeah. Goosebumps books when I was a kid. They started getting popular, but mm-hmm. uh, by the time they were getting popular, I was already reading like actual like you know. Yeah, like, by, Goosebumps by the time, was, was kid friendly horror, yeah, yeah. and that's great. And I love that. I know it was a lot of people's yeah. gateway, but by that point, I was already reading like actual know, horror, like books, Austin yeah. Blackwood and stuff. I was already like kind of like past that, and just yeah, Goosebumps was, wasn't that interesting but, to me. So by I didn't the read time many of them. by the time Goosebumps became big, I was already reading Poe and, and yeah. Clive Barker and stuff. So yeah, um, exactly. it, it, it's a little before my time or a little after my time. But uh, uh, yeah, from what I understand, this one really ups the the violence and the sex. Uh, yeah. This is an R rated film. Uh, there's somebody gets fed into a meat slicer. Uh, there's a lot of violence. That's a hell of, that's a, hell of a kill. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, and, a, uh, that's a much more brutal kill than I thought we were going to get in this movie. There's one yeah. kill in this movie that is really gross. And I was yeah, impressed. Yeah. Uh, but this is just a straight up middle, uh, right up the middle slasher movie about, uh, somebody in a skull mask who is stalking and killing people in this small town. in I think it's Ohio, um, Ohio. Yeah. Uh, and, the main characters, uh, there's five main characters, and I love them all. They're well-written characters. Uh, yeah. 
but the uh, the main character is uh, Dina. She's played by an actress named Kiana Madeira, and she is um, she's a cheerleader at the local. No, she's in high band. School. Or she's a band. Yeah, she's in band. band. I forget what she local, plays, but she's in band. Uh, local high school, and somebody was there's this violent murder right at the beginning, and yeah. in that uh, moral panic sort of way that actually was going on in the 1990s, they <clears throat> they get all the kids together for a vigil, and they're going to yeah. talk. And about it's mandatory, and everyone's yeah. like, all the kids are like, ah, yeah, kind of rolling yeah. their eyes, and uh, while they're at this vigil, um, Dina sees. Uh, a friend of hers, Samantha, cuddling up with this dude, and they confront each other. Wouldn't you know it, they just broke up. They were lovers very previously, but uh, Samantha is struggling with coming out, and uh, that's actually the center of this whole series. Yeah. It's queer in a way I love. Yeah, Um, that's that's the best part of the movie for me. Yeah. um, It's, yeah. hmm. Uh, it's because they're they're queer in a way where they're talking about it constantly. Mm. It's a big important part of the story and, and their it is, lives. And, That's and, the thing. And their it's lives not just incidental to their lives. Mm. It's who they are. Uh, but it's not so instrumental to the story that we're focusing it on it all the time. Yeah. Uh, it it's it has some lead queer characters who get to be queer. Constantly and openly throughout. You can't edit it yeah, out. Yeah, it's not something where they yeah. talk about it and it's just, or there's sort of like this flirty yeah. tension throughout. No, they were our ex-girlfriends. Yeah. And it's about them trying to reconcile their relationship. Uh, all the while, not only is uh, a fellow in a skull mask coming around, but wouldn't you know it, another slasher has also well, appeared. There's actually, And then another one as well. I actually think this is a fun concept mm. for a slasher movie. So the basic premise, and, and this is in like the credits. This is not like hidden. Um, the premise is a long time ago, there was a witch who got epically screwed over mm. and cursed this town. And her, every. And her name was Fear. F I E R, but Fear. Yeah, uh, the. Uh, yeah, Sarah Fear. Sarah Fear. Uh, and the idea is every eh, 10 years or so, someone in town is possessed by this witch or infected by this witch and goes on a killing spree. And you never know who. And that's what happened at the beginning of the film with the guy in the skull mask. And it's a very traditional, classic slasher movie opening set in a mall. Very effective. Does its job. Yeah, they, they really, they're, they're trying to lean really hard into the 90s nostalgia. So oh, yeah. There's, there's uh, like a couple of shots that are exactly from the movie Scream. Yeah. Then again, Scream ripped off a lot of shit. So it's really hard well, to point fingers. Scream was, you know, was sort of a comment. And I feel like yeah. this one is not. That, that's one thing I kind of don't like about this movie is it doesn't really utilize its setting in any kind of meaningful way. Well, we'll talk about that in a second. Yeah. I want to get through the plot. But that's a good point. I want to yeah. talk about this because I think the 90s setting is significant here. But let's yeah. real fast. So the plot is the guy in the skull mask is killing people. The guy in the skull mask is quickly dispatched. But after a couple of incidents and goings on, previous like mass murderers from this town's history start attacking as well. And it turns out they're all targeting one of the kids in this ensemble and as a result and this is fun you don't get to see a slasher movie with a whole bunch of slashers very often Mm. it's usually just the one or maybe the two of their partners but here's one where it's like okay so we've got the killer from scream also jason Voorhees, and uh Fuck it, the burning or something. I don't know, just one, just one other <laughs> and, random and, and, one. And Mary Lou. And Mary Lou, yeah. Yeah, even better. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly, because it's, yeah, it, yeah. So it's just three slashers all competing to get the same kills. Um, fun! I like that. I think that's a really clever way to get, like, a lot of slasher bang for your buck, and I think the movie has a lot of fun with that premise. Mm. 
the the issue that you're about to address is the fact that this movie is called 1994 and it really wants you to know it mm. by giving you a lot of 90s music from 95 and 96 and 97 okay okay i'm going to say this right now okay the the bush song was on point there's a the, few the, that the, are on the point the portis head song was on point there's a few that are on the point the very first track they drop on you is I, i'm only happy when it rains which came out in 95 and okay. i knew that maybe and I was mad. maybe it was an advanced like k rock it came like single that no, was released on a one. No. <laughs> also, a lot of them are really obvious. Oh, it's like stuff that okay. they still play on camera. I'm going to say this right now. I'm going to yeah. say this right now. The soundtrack to this movie, I am. I imagine watching Fear Street as someone who grew up in the '90s mm. must must have been like what it was like watching like Forrest Gump to my parents. Just <laughs> like, like just every all, all needle the drop, most obvious hits. Every needle know, drop yeah. is super obvious and blunt. Mm. And if you were there, you yeah, it's evoked. But like, it seems like you're trying to sell a soundtrack, not really convey a story because so, it's actually so in, in a way it is accurate to a lot of 90s movies no, which that's, were that's constructed actually, to sell soundtracks that's actually fair i'm also not going to ding him too hard for having a few anachronistic songs that's really not uncommon no. for movies if you, uh, set in the past uh, but if the the year is in your title I know, maybe, I know. maybe you should be a little bit more accurate i'm not saying it. it's beyond criticism what i'm saying is it doesn't hurt the movie for me mm. like if that's if that was the biggest problem with this movie the movie would be perfect like it's who cares uh but uh, but fair enough uh, for me, the issue with the way that they use the music is that they never just let it sit. Like, it's always constantly dropping, like, another song. Mm. Sometimes in the middle of a scene. Sometimes with little or no provocation. And oftentimes, the songs have nothing to do with anything. No. And mm. that's part. That's the thing that's frustrating for me, is you want to use this music. This music, when you use a song that is pre-existing, especially one that had popularity... It has baggage. It's bringing in mm. material for you to use. When people hear this song, and, they know the yeah. lyrics or they know the tune. They know where the song is going. They know and what the hook is. They know yeah. when the song is going to peak. So they know when the song peaks, so will the scene. And there's a way to wield that with great power. I yes. think... Uh, um Music supervisors have a very interesting job. Yeah. They're essentially making the mixtape of the movie, uh, which is very exciting. Uh, and, and it's something we actually saw a lot of in the 1990s, where mm. soundtracks were out selling movie tickets in many cases. Yeah. Especially, and we started seeing that not just in like new mm. soundtracks, soundtrack full of new music, but also nostalgia soundtracks. Like yeah. Sleepless in Seattle was a hit soundtrack. Mm. It was mostly old-timey love songs. Yeah. Um, I wonder what started that. I, like, I guess it's been going on for a while. The Big Chill was a big... Uh, the Big uh, Chill was the one that really big, one that, that kind of exactly. pushed it forward with all the Motown. Yeah, but I think the 90s started using it as an art form. We yeah. started seeing soundtracks with like a couple of new songs, but like Quentin Tarantino's soundtracks were monsters. Yeah. You know, um, he was reusing songs. That's That was what he yeah, did, well, but he would use them in interesting ways. Yeah, Wayne's World was a big one. Yeah. Um, uh, we, Forrest Gump was, was a two disc and it was huge. Yeah, Forrest yeah. Gump was, well, uh, was really, was, really annoying. This was just before the 90s, yeah. but Good Morning Vietnam was a gigantic soundtrack. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. Uh, so maybe. If you're setting a film in 1994 and you're trying to evoke 1994, make a 1994-esque soundtrack. I know, I know, I know. But I will say like, this. Like it's, it's significant. That's why we're talking I know. about and it. I, and I think, I think that the movie is overly reliant on needle drops to tell the story to the extent that they stop telling the story very well. Mm. And I, that, that frustrates me. There's one cool bit. I will say this. There is one clever use of music, which I haven't really seen before, uh, which... 
Well, not in this way, anyway. Uh, there's a bit where we're in the halls of the high school, and all of the high school uh, kids who will become our protagonists are walking down the hallway. And every time the camera, uh, the the film shifts focus to a different character, so we can see their experience and what they're mm-hmm. going, what's going on with them. The song changes. It's the exact same hallway, but their experience of it is dictated through a different song. Yeah. That was good storytelling. Yeah, I thought there's... that was a clever thing to do. That worked really, really well. But sometimes, man, it just feels like, look, I don't know what the fuck their music budget was on this movie. <laughs> it must have been huge. Like, the I music think, budget of this movie yeah, is like must have been like a million dollars easy. To license white yeah. zombie and garbage and, and, and all the and, rest and of And, like, stuff. Nine Inch Nails is one of the first mm. needle drops. And you're just like, Jesus fucking... Are you just showing off? <laughs> like, are you... Who do you know mm. <laughs> at these record companies? Like, but, holy uh, fuck. But, but like I said, I, I, like, uh, I like the character work a lot. Yeah. I think that's where this one really excels. In addition to... Uh, uh, Canada Mediera, we have Olivia Scott Welsh as uh, the Samantha character, her girlfriend. Um, Josh is played by Benjamin Flores Jr. He's, um, is he the funny one or is he the, he's, the nerdy he's, one? He's the nerdy one. Okay. Well, they're all funny, but he's, well, yeah, he's the, the nerdy one who's actually like interested in the history of the town. And he's the one who, when the shit hits the fan, actually knows all about yeah. the witch and stuff like that. But he's actually like a smart, interesting mm-hmm. kid who isn't like socially awkward as like some sort of shitty plot point. Well, he he's, just, he's socially awkward in an organic way, not well, in a plot contrived. It feels like way. he's socially awkward in the way that like, all, these are all of like my older siblings friends and I'm a couple mm. years younger than them. And I don't really fit yeah, their dynamic a, very well, but they don't dislike me either. That's a natural thing that works really a, well. There's a nerd character in the film, the tomorrow War, which we're going to talk about in a second, oh, yeah. <laughs> who is literally a, a plot point. Like he only exists to provide some plot information. I love that character it's so the much. Stupidest shit. I um, love it so much. But, uh, I, think I have a very different take on that. Film uh, than you do, well, but we'll talk okay, about we'll that in a minute. Um, there's uh, sort of like the star girl who actually is like really interesting and dynamic and has a lot of things to, mm-hmm. to say and like yeah. approach things with a lot of intelligence. Most popular girl like, who is. Yeah. Julia uh, Raywalt is the, yeah. the actress's name. She's also dealing drugs, and she's dealing drugs with a guy uh, named, I think it's, it's Simon, played mm-hmm. by uh, Fred Heckinger. Um, and uh, Fred Heckinger, he initially presents himself as, like, the stupid comic relief guy, but over the course of the film, you realize that he's actually got, like, a lot of layers. There's a really great bit, there's a really fun little bit of storytelling. After he's been kind of, like, the shiftless stoner who, like, you know, mm. is constantly saying the stupid wrong thing. And then we cut to the inside of a supermarket where he works. And you realize he's been employee of the month for, like, ten months running. <laughs> he's actually very responsible. Very and well, and, yeah. well, later in the movie, he's the one who, like, is, like, complimenting everyone and talking them up. And yeah. making sure, the, like, the mood is really light. I really like the and way that, like, uh, all of these characters who seem yeah. like they're cliches at the beginning of the story reveal that they're really deep yeah. in the way that people do. Like you only know of someone a little bit from afar. Mm. You get a general impression of them, but then you spend real time with them in a situation that matters and you realize who they really are and that they're, they're, they're human and they have complexity. Uh, and, That's and great. That's good he, storytelling. He, he gets a great bit during sort of the, uh, there, there's a, a scene in, in the middle where they all have to sort of like wash and undress and it's sort of to like sort of oh, engender yeah. some <laughs> sexual tension. And, uh, and the There's Simon the character place. gets a little by himself. <laughs> it's really, ad- it's, it's like, it's really adorable, did, did, actually. Did everyone, did every like, because all the other people paired off, yeah. like, did everyone, did everyone, all you guys go get some? Me too! <laughs> like, dude. Like, th- that could have been handled in, like, such a gross way, and yet it's somehow, like, really endearing. <laughs> I know, and, like, I kind of respect him. Shoot yeah. your shot, man. Might be your last night on Earth. Um, 
Uh, for me, uh, I think you're, I think that you're right. I think the, the strength of this movie is in its characters. The characters are what make me want to see more installments, even mm. though we're going to go into the past. And there's a connective tissue. I won't ruin what it is, but it really does make you want to see the next one right away. Mm. Um, for which, me, which they they tack on a preview. At the yeah, end yeah. It's like it's like the end of Back to the Future Part Two, where mm. like all of a sudden we see scenes from Part Three, and you're like, "Ooh, I want to see that right now." They do that here, and it works. Um, for me, I think one of the film's greatest strengths is also kind of its problem and that's it's got a manic energy to it like a very youthful mm. like we gotta this is like my one chance to make a slasher movie i'm gonna throw everything in there kind of energy yeah uh and sometimes that makes it feel like great we're watching like three slasher movies all at once and it's like a really really cool uh but especially at the beginning it feels like we're kind of racing from one scene to the next and it it's, just feels like yeah it, it feels when, like it's not the, giving uh, itself room to breathe and that mm. kept me from connecting with the characters until it was almost too late. Okay. Like about I, I halfway think, through uh, the movie was when it finally started to solidify. And that's a lot of real estate. This is a pretty long slasher movie. Yeah. It's it, well, almost it's, two hours. It's about an hour, 47 minutes. It's, it's not hugely long, uh, as, but it's, it's 107 long, minutes. It's yeah. long as slashers go, yeah. um, which, you know, usually are in and out in like 86. Yeah. Uh, yeah, all all of the establishing stuff, you know, the uh, opening murder sequence, and then all of the stuff about the vigil. It's not until uh, the two lead characters, uh, Samantha and and Dina, mm. sort of start talking to each other. Well, once they're on becomes... camera together for the rest of the film, from yeah. here on out, we're all together. So yeah, that's when it starts what, taking what, shape. Yeah, well, that's when it actually like yeah. gets its hooks in. I think that's a fine way to to tell a story. I agree. I just think uh, it feels like it's... we're kind of every single scene before that feels a little rushed. Okay. That's the, it's it's not the biggest critique in the world because ultimately I ended up did I did end up forming an attachment, mm. but I feel like I could have done that a little sooner if we weren't in such a rush, and if we acknowledge uh, that this it's... movie is gonna be a little longer than a typical slasher, let's give it another five minutes and let these scenes breathe a little. I think fair, that might have been a little yeah, bit stronger. Th- that's that's a totally fair criticism. I yeah. think. Um... It doesn't. It didn't feel bloated to me, though. It didn't feel like they're they're trying to fit too much story. I feel that way about uh, um, those it movies. Of course, those it movies, which is like I think it's five five or six hours when you put them all together. They're pretty fucking uh, long. Yeah. yeah. So it's like they're not just letting it breathe. They're just going everywhere and you know yeah. letting it, all seven of the main characters have bits and that's just taking I, up know, so much dang I, time. I think the first film in that in that yeah. duology or whatever you want to call. It, I, th- I think the first film in that. Mm. is amazing and i think the second film could have been amazing if it wasn't based on the book it (laughs) it falls apart in the second half no matter how you slice it because the second half of it gets stupid but the first half is great (laughs) um and and then there's a scene from the book that they would never film in the movie and i'm glad they did that was that was smart that'd be uh nearly if you you read it you know what i'm talking about that would would be the worst thing ever um speaking of stupid oh real real fast i just want to give a shout out we can speak of stupid (laughs) real real fast this is not speaking of stupid i want to give credit because we haven't talked about the director of fear street Uh, her name is lee janiac uh she made a really excellent low-budget horror movie a few years ago uh, called Honeymoon. And if you're like really excited to see like more of her stuff after seeing Fear Street, please check it out. It's this really creepy body horror movie about a couple that go to like a cabin for their honeymoon, and like the guy's new wife like goes out into the woods and comes back. And he starts wondering if he's if she's really his wife anymore. Like, do I? I thought I knew you, and then we got married, and you changed right away. And then it gets really gross and fucked up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a really, really great horror debut, and you can totally see why someone would give her like an opportunity to do like a trilogy like this. 
uh, because clearly this is someone who has a lot of talent on something on their mind. So uh, just I just want to give a shout out because we had to mention her name. She's really great. Now, mm. going back to the stupid and then speaking of it. <laughs> the Tomorrow War. The Tomorrow War is the, the first uh, live action feature film from director Chris McKay. Who had done uh, Shrek, right? Um, he uh, No, he worked on the Lego Batman movie. Oh, who am I thinking? Well, it was Adam McKay who did Shrek? Anyway, maybe so. Um, and yeah, he's uh, he's worked with Lord and Miller and uh, Andrew Addison was who I think. I don't know. Oh, I okay. fucked that one up. But anyway, okay. yeah. No, the, he, yeah, he previously directed the Lego Batman movies. Worked with Lord and Miller on the, some of their animated projects, mm. and now he's directing uh, uh, a big dumb science fiction movie uh, yeah. starring Chris Pratt, who was also in uh, in the Lego movies. Yeah. Um, Chris Pratt plays a soldier. In the and, near future, and a scientist, and, a, and he's a science as a high school science teacher now. Yeah, uh, one of the kids in his class loves volcanoes. This will be important. This later. will be important later. <laughs> so, this, so long this, as yeah, if if your fingers aren't being hammered into a table, uh, <laughs> with its obviousness. Almost uh, every single thing in like the first yeah. part of this movie, it almost it almost in like a good Back to the Future way, where like literally every single thing that gets said or shown in the like before Marty McFly goes back in time and Back to the Future is important later. Or it's least, brilliant. It's or, brilliant. Or at writing. least has a bit of a gag attached to it. Yeah, exactly. Way. Like it, there's uh, no there's no wasted real estate. It's yeah, kind of brilliant. All, it's, that movie's all setups and payoffs. Here, uh, the Tomorrow War, it's like everything will be important later in a clunky way, yeah. in a way that's so, kind of like <laughs> thuddingly so, obvious. So dig this premise. Uh, he's a soldier he can't uh he misses out on getting a big job right at the beginning um of the film uh yeah. and he doesn't really know what like he's he's now a little bit adrift uh a big portal opens up in the middle of a football game and a bunch of soldiers pour out and they say into a microphone we're from 30 years in the future there's been an alien invasion in the interim uh and we've been fighting them off but they're killing us at such a rate that we can only recruit people from the past, like in that movie Millennium. Uh, <laughs> if you ever saw the movie Millennium, and everyone in the audience is like, "We did not see the we movie didn't see Millennium." Millennium. Okay. Yeah, we know. Wait. Look in the watch it because in the future it's really important. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Millennium was a film from the early '90s yeah. about how uh, mm. people were dying out in the future because uh, like a, a plague or something, right? Wasn't no, it's a... sterility; they can't uh, reproduce oh, yeah. anymore, yeah. and um, we're running out of human beings. So, and they, so... <laughs> they go back in time to uh, disasters, like when people have died, and yeah. they've figured out a way they they can like replace people with like exact dead replicas. Yeah. So they go on to crashing planes, mm-hmm. teleport people into the future from the crashing planes, and replace them with dead bodies. And that way, they have effectively saved all these people's lives but they haven't but, fucked with the timeline. Yeah, yeah. And that's what's going on in the Tomorrow War. So the idea is we are recruiting people from the past to fight a war in the future. And one thing that they notice pretty quickly, Chris Pratt is pretty quickly drafted into this, as you can imagine, uh, it's, it's is more, that... He, he gets to redeem himself by becoming a soldier. You know what? Let's yeah. talk about it for a second. All right. The, the premise, and this, this is a movie... It's one of those movies I like to call a 2 a.m. at Denny's movie where like it feels like someone came up with the high concept when they were high and they stayed up till 2 a.m. at Denny's hashing out all the details and they really want you to know they thought about the details. Bring us another plate of fries. We, we're, we're nailing this <laughs> we've, thing. We've almost cracked time travel. Sure thing. <laughs> you How want cheese on when, those fries? When, when do you start serving breakfast? <laughs> uh, but the idea is this. Everyone who they're drafting is like a lot of them are like in their 40s or 50s mm. it's not who you would normally think and the idea is these are people who in the future are already dead yeah so the timeline won't be that mm. fucked with 
Like we won't be like there aren't people yeah. who are currently there who no, will get uh, eliminated, then they blink out of existence or something. And they they explain that in the future they can only go back like the the exact same period of time each time. Yeah. So they, if they they use it a month later, it's a month later in the past they, as well. They actually have a pretty good visual mm-hmm. metaphor for it, where it's basically like imagine time is a river; it's constantly flowing mm-hmm. forward. Uh, the future is a boat, and it's tugging this portal behind it like a raft. So it's always equally distant apart. Yeah. So if you leave the past and go to the future and are in the future for one week, mm. you can only go back into the past a week after you left. But this is that makes sense. I'm, I'm willing to accept that. Makes that. sense. This is what we call a really dumb plot control. No, 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 no. Because no. if you have that's time fine. travel, that's fine. If you're introducing time travel, why don't you go back in time and prevent the war? They don't even bring that up until much later in the movie uh-huh. when Chris Pratt is in the future fighting off these uh, kind of boring looking monsters. Yeah, they're just uh, these big white creatures with. Sharp teeth and a tentacle. They, they've got tentacles. They can they can spit thorns. They're if I saw one established, if one intelligent or not. If one jumped on me, I'd probably be scared. But well, in, in a, a movie, big, they're a little big unremarkable. Jog jumps on me, I'll be scared. Yeah, that's and, the point. Yeah. It's, it's, in a movie, they're a little unremarkable. But like, yeah, yeah they're they're just big monsters. Um, so yeah, he goes into the future and he ends up uh, getting involved in a big plot to maybe find a way to kill the alien queen so that none of the other aliens can be alive anymore and that requires him to maybe go back in time again and it gets kind of wibbly wobbly timey wimey no, it's it, the story's actually pretty straightforward. Well, I, and, and, uh, I don't want to go into like, a whole lot of detail about know, uh, it and ruin I'll, everything. But. Films like Looper and Avengers Endgame uh, want, have wanted to have time travel plots, but they didn't want to really uh, deal with causality yeah. in any kind of way because thanks to films like Back to the Future and The Terminator, we're, we've been thinking a little bit too much about causality. And yeah. these are plot, uh, movie plots that don't want to have to deal with that so they change the rules yeah since time time travel doesn't exist unless you're a quark uh then (laughs) then i think it's okay you can do whatever you want with time travel. it's all made up anyway as long as you Uh, here's what i ask from from a time travel movie present me the general rules of how time travel works and then don't fuck with that yeah just give me the gist of it make sure i can understand it and then follow those rules you can make up any rules you want as long as you follow them that's all I care but about. But the the way the time travel works is they gear everybody. Like, you're drafted. It's a global draft. Mm-hmm. Everybody in the world, and it's been going on for long enough. And it seems hopeless enough that everybody is just pretty much assured that the human race is going to become yeah. extinct, and like, everybody's like depressed. Only about twenty percent of the people who are drafted come back, and they're hopelessly traumatized because they've yeah, just seen and, some uh, horrible shit. And, 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 and nobody gets to see pictures of what the monsters look like because it's just it was, too scary. Yeah, they said uh, no. One, they couldn't. They wouldn't be able to draft anybody if they saw what the monsters look like, which sets them up to be. Pretty astounding, and they're they're they're, they're, they're scary monsters. They, they yeah. look they they look almost exactly like the things from a quiet place. Yeah, relic. you think they look more the like relic. Cathogas? I think a little bit more like a Cathoga to me. Cathogas with tentacle back. They look like they look like the tentacle they, monster from the Resident Evil film with the liquor. I think is what it was. Oh yeah, a little, little bit, bit. Yeah, a little like bit that like that. Thing. Yeah, a little some. Anyway, that's kind of unremarkable. But uh, they're unremarkable monsters. But they get they gather up all of the people who have been drafted just a few days before, giving them a quick gist, saying, "Here's a gun, shoot everything." You're we're fodder, give you... basically. That's yeah. all they are. Yeah. You do, we, we just we need just you to need... hold them back when we're doing stuff, more or less. Yeah. And, and they get sucked up out of essentially like a time travel airfield. It's a big space. Yeah, they get pulled up like into the sky through this big suction mm-hmm. vortex, and they uh, arrive like. High above the ground. Oh yeah, they say they say like as as they're being like floated off. It's actually kind of a moment that's kind of funny. That's like they're being floated off into the ground and they're disappearing into a vortex. And that's when Chris Pratt hears someone else like, "Oh, there's a problem with the vortex. The 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 coordinates for where they're landing is totally wrong. Should we abort?" Whoa! 
No! <laughs> and then he ends up like it, it, they all then, like then they end, end up, up like, like hundreds of feet up in the like yeah. above the the skyscraper tops. And the only they ones all just plummet to their death. The, yeah, the, the only like only like fifteen of them survive because they happen to land on rooftops. Like oh. that's it. <laughs> that, that's pretty much. That's pretty funny, actually. Mm-hmm. I kind of like that. Like, edit, a, yeah. what more can go wrong? Kind of vibe. All that shit's kind of fun. Oh, and we forgot to say that uh, Chris Pratt has issues with his dad that will be solved by the end, and his dad is played oh, yeah. by J.K. Simmons, who is uh, super buff in this movie. Well, yeah, he's been, he's been working he's out. Clearly working out, I think, he, for this film. No, he was working out for Justice League. But you, you don't see his arms in Justice League. I know! It was <laughs> We weird. see his arms in this. He, he was he's like, showing off them guns. He was, like, he was, like, doing all this, like, bodybuilding shit, and he was, like, putting stuff on Instagram, like, I'm working out for Justice League or whatever, and then he's just wearing a coat. He was probably, he was probably working out for Tomorrow War, but, you know, Whatever. wanted to hype Justice League. Like, if he wants to get buff, yeah. knock yourself out. I don't know, he could just yeah. be doing it for him. I don't know. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, uh, you would think that they would use time travel in a clever sort of way. They don't. Not really. Uh, Chris Pratt kills a bunch of monsters, meets his uh, adult daughter in the future, yeah. goes back in time, uh, is, I guess, traumatized um, because uh, there was He saw a, some shit. I'm sorry, let's go get into that detail. But. Uh, he actually uh, did the climax of the movie and then they go back in time and they have another one. Yeah. Because it's a, a damn long movie and we have to overstuff yeah. these things. I, I will say this. Here's what I'm going to say hmm. about The Tomorrow War. Every single critique you have about this movie mm. is totally fair. That it's that it's stupid and uncreative? It's very stupid. Yeah. It's not entirely uncreative, but it's almost entirely uncreative. All right. I had fun anyway. And I'll say this <laughs> oh, right did now. You? Oh, I did gosh. actually. I I'm not I didn't love it. Okay. I'm not this isn't my new White House down or anything. But this is dumb in the way that Roland Emmerich movies are dumb. It's okay. their big brash. They're they're a excuse for ensembles. Uh, and there's some really fun like supporting performances. Sam Richardson from Werewolves Within is mm. in this movie, and he's every time he's on screen, he's fun. He, he's he's funny. He's playing a really cliched character. Which I have trouble with. He but, is, uh, but yeah. he's making it work better than you might think. Uh, Marilyn Rice Cubs in the movie. I can't remember the last time I saw her in a film, and she's always fun, and she's yeah. in, not in it enough. But well, she's um, been, she's been doing a lot of uh, live shows these days. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah. All right, but she's she's great. Um, completely wasted Betty Gilpin, who's like yeah. one of, such an incredible actor, and she gets to play the wife. <laughs> it's she doesn't really have a lot to do, and it's a shame because she, she totally could have been any character in this movie. She, she steps it. up to Chris Pratt and like acts right in his face, like, <laughs> like a big. A big blast of acting right in Chris Pratt. And Chris Pratt is, is a, a charming screen presence. Um, he I can, he's I coasting seen, on charm. I have not seen his range as an actor. Maybe yeah. he has a lot, but he hasn't been... Yeah. He's playing a really dull character here. Yeah, he's really generic. And in fact, and, yeah. I, I don't like this arc uh, that I see in a lot of these movies mm. where uh, the only road to redemption is murdering people on a battlefield. Like, b- yeah. b- becoming well, not, the, ju- not just a soldier, but a really capable soldier. The idea is, is, is I feel like what they're getting at here, and I, I realize where you're coming and, from, and, and I don't about, disagree. But, it's not about the camaraderie or no. learning a skill. It's about getting rid of all of your angst by killing. The idea, there's a, there's a scene in the movie, which I actually kind of like, mm. um, where it's like, after the revelation that the future is doomed, uh, but uh, before all the action kicks in and Chris Pratt hasn't been drafted yet. And he's a science teacher in high school and he's trying to get his kids engaged. And all of these high schoolers are like, we're going to die in 30 years. And there's a, there's actual like studies that have been shown that like so much of uh, what we know about mm-hmm. like what's going on with like climate change and resource management and overpopulation there's a real existential crisis going on with a lot of younger people where it's like, yeah, we get to live 
for how long? Yeah. In what kind of world? It's l- l- less optimism in general. And, and, I, and I think that's that's a fair mm-hmm. thing to address. And I think this movie obviously literalizes that in a, in a more immediate way than mm-hmm. we even have today. And so Chris Pratt is basically asked the question, what's the fucking point? Mm-hmm. You want to talk about photosynthesis? <laughs> We're going to be dead in 30 years. Who cares? And his point is this. If anything is going to save the human race, it's going to be science. Mm-hmm. It's going to be some discovery, some... A realization, some uh, development, and it's going to come from you, mm. young people who are going to think outside the box and are going to do something crazy. And, uh, and I, science and, and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who are firing guns. I'm working on that. <laughs> My point is this. They get to the point where uh, the actual like adventure that he goes on in the future isn't about just slaughtering people. It's about rescuing scientific data mm. and then doing a lot of lab tests. I feel like that's what they were getting at. Okay. Is that that was important. I think they whiffed it because ultimately you have this ultimate, the whole movie is based on a paradox, but uh, you have this paradox where like we're trying to suggest that science is the answer, but we can only sell the movie if there's violence. Right. And so that's a so, contradiction. Uh, we, but We have action science. Yeah. But I do think that they are at well, least attempting to engage with the idea that mm. science is more important in the end. Yeah. and that, a, or, or at the very least, you know, intelligence, mm. thought, an attempt to solve a problem. Mm. Yeah, there's, there's violence a, involved, but like it's an attempt to solve a problem intellectually. There's a movie from a couple of years ago called World War Z. It was a zombie film. Yeah. And um, I, I'm not super fond of the movie, but it has one of my favorite action movie structures in yeah. that it opens with the biggest a- action set piece and climaxes with the smallest. Yeah. Uh, the climax of that movie is uh, uh, Brad Pitt and two zombies. Two Mm-hmm. In a lab in a basement somewhere, and there's no music playing. Yeah. And he's sneaking around because if he <clears throat> fails to get something out of that lab and the zombies see him, then humanity is dead. Yeah. And they've established all of that, yeah. but the climax of the movie is just that. There's yeah. not a, a single shot fired. Yeah. And, and there's a way the, to do that with the Tomorrow War as well. I agree. Start and big and then get smaller as you go. Because and it's not just about getting, it's getting smaller in terms of like, scope but in actual in terms of our investment in terms of the stakes mm. it's bigger yeah because the opening is this gigantic zombie attack in like new york city or whatever yeah, and they're climbing yeah, skyscrapers thousands and, thousands of zombies, yeah, and it's like, really really huge around. it's very exciting uh but it's about saving his family i care enough about his family that i want them to survive but that's all it is really it's about the immediacy of that and when it's brad pitt versus two zombies it, the whole human race is at stake so that really works. Another movie that does that, and it's it's a favorite of both yours and mine, uh, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Yeah, I love it. Opens Rogue with the biggest stunt in the film, mm. closes with a foot chase yep. through streets. <laughs> like, and it's it, it's not that those action sequences are small, it's that the our our investment in them means that they don't have to be big anymore. We're not just making them big for the sake of bigness. It's all about how much investment we have. Uh Tomorrow War doesn't really have smart ideas about structure. Tomorrow War has like... Or, or ideas... No, stop no. it. Stop. That's, that, that, that's a hyperbole and you know it. They have ideas, they're just not very well thought out, okay? And mm. I think the overall, the basic premise of here, which is that the universe is so fucked we have to get soldiers from the past, is kind of interesting in a I found this dog-eared sci-fi novel in the back of a used bookstore and I read it over a weekend in the summer kind of way. Yeah. All right. It's it's not it's kind of high concept, but it's also not very well implemented, so it might as well be low concept. Um and I'm okay with that. That yeah. doesn't piss me off. I think that the cast is 
trying to inject this very sort of thudding, dunderheaded action movie with enough personality that it gets you through the scenes and it makes you like just sort of enjoy what's happening. Mm -hmm. And I did enjoy what was happening. It was stupid and I laughed at it a lot of times. There's my favorite line of the movie is when um oh God. <laughs> is when Chris Pratt you saw I post about this. Chris oh. Pratt uh, asks a guy has like a, one of the claws of the monsters like around his neck and he calls it a souvenir. And the guy says it's not a souvenir. It's a reminder. And I looked up the definition of souvenir. <laughs> it's a reminder. That's what souvenir it's means. literally what a souvenir is. I wanted to double yeah. check. Literally I, what souvenir means. That was hilarious. I, That's the kind of like dialogue that we're dealing with I, here. I came back from uh, the line of dialogue from, uh, it was from uh, Lucio Fulci's film, The Beyond. Oh, yeah. Uh, somebody says, you have carte blanche, not a blank check. Carte blanche means blank check. <laughs> well, it doesn't mean you have unlimited funding. Carte blanche means you can do whatever you want. It doesn't mean you have an unlimited funding blank to do it. Blank check also means you can do whatever you want. That's true, but it Those also means... Those things mean the same thing. No, but one of them is, is impl implies a financial uh, fine, investment. Fine, fine. It's, it's splitting hairs, but technically that is a little different. But not, like, not in the context of the scene. It's granted, the same thing. I'll grant you that. I'll grant you all of that. Uh, listen, it's a big stupid summer movie, okay? Mm. And I got... It, it was a Paramount film that Paramount sold to Amazon and yeah. is going straight to Prime. Yeah, it it should it should never have cost two hundred million dollars. It doesn't feel like two hundred million dollars. Uh, it's kind of stupid, but I had an enjoyable enough time watching it. If this had been a movie that I had caught over the summer when I was fourteen, I would have had um, a good time with it. Yeah, I would have said this was is kind of stupid, but I enjoyed it. When I was fourteen. I would have seen it twice anyway. Yeah, I would have I would have watched it a couple of times. I might have some fond memories of it. Would have introduced me to some interesting character actors, and then that would have been the end of that. I'm okay then, with that. That's oh, not but, the end of the world. For oh, me. but 20 years later, it's an underrated masterpiece. I know, I know, <laughs> and I, but it's not. This, this one is. It's like there are certain movies that I just feel. I hope we never get to that point. Yeah. Where like I have a good time watching these movies. There's stuff I like about them. But if we ever get to the point where we say the Arnold Schwarzenegger film Eraser is an unsung classic, we're wrong. Mm. There's a cool plane fight in that movie. He where, like, shoots an alligator and says, "Your luggage." That's a good part. <laughs> but there's a cool part where he like he jumps out of a plane and like has to like grab mid a parachute in midair. But he and gets then the tangled up in it while he's falling. All that's yeah. a cool stunt. And then the. James Caan is in the airplane and he flies like he tells the pilot to ram Arnold Schwarzenegger I, I, like midair and Arnold yeah. Schwarzenegger's like shooting at him while he's parachuting down trying to, to untangle his parachute trying to while shoot he's the falling, pilot of this yeah. plane that it, scene is glorious from uh, from the director of uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 and The Mask yep Chuck Russell um, <laughs> that that scene is glorious the movie is junk yeah alright some movies are not destined to be all time classics this I would I would bet a lot of money that this isn't one of them, but I also I, I, I there's nothing about this movie that's bad in a way that makes me turn on it. Okay. There's nothing about this movie that's like this is bad and I'm mad at it. It's just stupid. It's just kind of stupid, and I don't mind kind of stupid as long as it's not as kind of stupid that like makes the world a worse place. I can live with this kind of stupid. All right. I had an okay time watching this kind of stupid movie. Uh, Let's I, move I, on. I just watched a stupid movie. <laughs> You're not wrong, mm. but I, I I just can't. There's so much shit in the world, dude. I can't be mad at. I can't <laughs> be, be mad, mad at, at the, the Tomorrow, tomorrow War. War. I can't be mad at Tomorrow it's, War Two. I just can't. It's not at the bottom of my list of the no. year. It's just a stupid movie. You're not wrong. Uh, tell me about No Sudden Move. How about okay, that? Uh, No Sudden Move is not a stupid movie. In fact, it's so smart. I lost the thread a little bit. Oh shit. Uh, well, it's it's one of those movies that has like every other scene is some sort of like new twist or betrayal, mm -hmm. and after a while, you you 
wait, who's betraying who? Why did they betray them in this scene? Right. What's going on? But um, this is the latest film from Steven Soderbergh. Um, it's uh, debuting on HBO after playing at some festivals. Um, Steven Soderbergh is an expert at trimming down his movies to the bare minimum. Uh, not that he's a minimalist director, just he doesn't like to pat out his movies with a lot of fat. He gets yeah. great actors. He knows how to direct them in such a way where we we get the most communication and the least amount of time. Mm-hmm. And he gets these really, really, really tight scripts that uh, that rarely uh, sort of start to sprawl all over the place. Unless that's the point, which I think he can say about some of the Ocean's movies. Uh, Ocean's 12 is the messy one. Yeah, the other two are pretty tight. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Uh, Ocean's 12, I think uh, they, they kind of rushed it a little bit because they yeah. didn't expect Ocean's 11 to be the hit it was. Um, this is another crime movie. Uh, it stars uh, Don Cheadle, as a fellow who is uh, freshly out of prison, uh, he's in deep with a mysterious gangster who will later see is played by the wonderful Bill Duke. Ooh, uh, and, yeah, I haven't seen him in a while. Love Bill Duke. Yeah, great, uh, great actor, he, really good director. Too. He teams up with another uh, sort of um, uh, sort of like hench person guy who's like a, a petty petty criminal mm-hmm. played by Benicio del Toro, and they have been asked to uh, engage what they call a babysitting job. That is hold a family hostage while they get uh, uh, one of the members, uh, in this case played by David Harbour, to provide them with an important document that they've been sent to retrieve. Coming along with them is uh, Kieran Culkin, who is a little bit of a wild card. They don't know who he is. He explains the job, but he doesn't seem like he's completely forthcoming. Uh, And uh, when they send David Harbour to get this sort of document, it turns out it's really, really difficult for him because the David Harbour character is having an affair with his boss's secretary. There's a, a kind I've of, already lost the thread. I'm not oh yeah, there's lie. there's All kind right. of this this hilarious scene where he has to go into David Harbour has to go into his office and he just needs something out of a safe really, really fast. But like the woman he's having an affair with confronts him about how, you know what he said about it. Uh, if, has he broken up with his wife yet? And it's like, he's like, okay, I, I'll talk to you about this really important thing in a second. Right now, I'm like, my family's being held hostage. Right. Um, and I'm going to stop describing the plot there, A, because it gets much more complicated, and B, mm. uh, this is when the surprises start coming. And, okay. Uh, and people start betraying people, and people get shot. It's and, elaborate, yeah. Yeah, it gets, gets pretty elaborate. You know, who's having an affair with whom, and Benicio del, del Toro uh, has a girlfriend who is married to Ray Liotta. This has an amazing cast, by the way. Uh, Amy Simitz, John Hamm, Ray Liotta, Kieran Culkin, uh, Noah Jupe uh, is one of the kids mm. <laughs> in, the, in the hostage scene, and uh, a few other... Um, a few other cameos that I'll leave uh, for for you to discover. But apart from its complicated plot, uh, it's good golly is it ex- an exciting thing to watch. Uh, it's one of those things where you just sort of let all of the twists and the wonderful performances just kind of rush at you and you absorb what you can. And uh, while you may be losing some of the plot, you're getting a lot of really interesting, subtle character work for, because these are great actors doing you know their best stuff. I love Don Cheadle. I oh, think he's, he's an amazing. A, I think he's an excellent actor ever since amazing. I saw him in devil in a blue dress back in the mid nineties. Mm. He's just always had my attention. Um, he, He's, he's one of my favorite a, interviews I've ever done. Oh, yeah? Yeah, he was just really cool, very very thoughtful, a really, yeah. really cool guy. Um, yeah. I think he's in the new Space Jam. Yes, he's, he is. He's, he's, he's got to yes, eat, but, you know. Look, um, <laughs> I, when I interviewed Don Cheadle, I asked him about um, uh, the movie Volcano, which was a movie he made before he like became like kind of as well-respected yeah. as he would become. Um, he'd already done good stuff, but... Uh, but he has a small role in this stupid-ass disaster movie, Volcano, about a volcano erupting from the La Brea Tar Pits in Los Angeles mm. and 
taking over Los Angeles. And he spends almost all the movie like in a room on a phone with Tommy Lee Jones talking about exposition. It's mm. t- it, terrible. And it's kind um, of a thankless role. But he had a great. He had. A, he was really thoughtful about it. And he was talking about how uh, he was out with his mom like at the supermarket or something. And someone walked up to him and said, I loved you in that movie Volcano. And he was talking about how, yeah, I just, I got kind of like embarrassed and I was like, Oh, I thank you. I'm not really proud of that one. And my mm-hmm. mom, and he said, my mom stopped me and said, no, <laughs> you someone someone like that. Movie. <laughs> they, they appreciated you in that movie. You should be grateful for that. Mm-hmm. And he was like, you know what? You're right. Sometimes you're in a movie that you think is kind of stupid, but it brings some people joy. Who cares? Okay. Like, I'm not going to be mad about it. So, good for him. I really hope Space Jam brings me joy. I hope it brings uh, someone joy. I, look, I'd, I would love to be surprised. Wouldn't it be great if it ended up being I, pretty clever? And I, I, had some... I loathe the original Space Jam. My, so do My, my so do expectations I. are very low, but this one might break Maybe? it open. Hey, it's got to be possible, right? I saw Porky Pig rapping, and my hopes are even lower than they were before, but... Uh... <laughs> anyway, we're not here to talk about Space Jam. We're here to talk about the new Soderbergh. Um... Yeah, it's it's uh, like I said, it is it is tight as a drum. It is uh, just there's and there's a lot of uh, political messaging about what's going on about you know the the movement of wealth and enfranchisement and disenfranchisement that is sort of going on uh, and and this interplay between the corporate world and the criminal world, which is actually like right next to each other. Uh, there are some really clever bits that lead into. Uh, lead into violent moments. There's a bit, a really tense scene where Don Cheadle and Benicio del Toro are at uh, a dinner with one of the characters. Mm. And uh, he knows everybody in the room is like a wise guy or is like really high, high strung. And he's like trying to break the tension and he ends up uh, doing something very simple. He doesn't like pull out a gun. He's, he just like breaks something and the entire room erupts into violence. Like he was able to instigate it with just that. There's like that much tension in every single one of the scenes that you're not sure if this is going to be one of the scenes where something really, really violent happens. And sometimes it happens really unexpectedly. Uh, And Steven Soderbergh just is able to clip it along really, really fast. Hmm. Um, and it's and because the plot is so complicated, it feels smart. Uh, <laughs> Whether like, or not it uh, is might take closer introspection. Yeah, like, like I'll have to watch Tinker Tailor's Soldier Spy like three or four more times before I, I, I can really appreciate if it's smart or not. But it sure feels that way. And when yeah. you watch it the first time and you're completely lost and you don't know who Smiley is doing and who Baytreed who. And why is that guy killed in that one scene? Who is hey, who Smiley goes, doing? But look at that photography and boy, those suits. Uh, yeah, so Steven Soderbergh is has a, sort of a styleless style, if you will. Like he he's a when he wants to when he wants yeah he can he's, also, he's actually a pretty versatile filmmaker and he can be very stylish if he chooses. He, he can be very style. I think he tells a lot of uh, his stories through his photography. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he's also really interested in uh, technology. He was one of the early early mainstream. Uh, filmmakers to adopt a lot of digital technology and mm. distribution as well. Uh, he's not uh, going to be a filmmaker who is at all upset that one of his films is debuting on uh, a streaming platform. No, because uh, if you recall back in uh, back when he made a film called Bubble, yeah. they did this experimental thing where it was released in theaters on home video and on on demand all at the same time. That was really novel at the time. Yeah, nowadays it's very common, especially for smaller independent films, but yeah. at the time that was like, everyone was like, oh, is this going to break everything? It's like, no, he actually saw the writing on the wall. He's yeah. been really, really interested in, in tech and digital yeah. photography and digital And he's editing. also not like pressure. Like, listen, I appreciate 
people trying to preserve 35 millimeter, and I'm glad mm. they do. But I think we can also sometimes get a weirdly exclusionary about that about oh, kind absolutely. of fetishizing certain formats. And a, Soderbergh yeah. is not. Soderbergh is yeah, just like, yeah. I'll make a movie however I can make a movie, and you can still mm. make a good movie. You can shoot it all on a phone, and you can still make a good movie. And he's mm. done that, literally, I think. Yeah. I don't think he's done it, but I've was, seen wasn't, uh, wasn't uh, Unsane... Oh, that's right. It was. He shot. He shot that one on an iPhone. Yeah, he yeah. did. He shot on. That's on a good set. movie. And it's a good looking it's movie. It's a good too. movie. Uh, it looks like it was shot on an iPhone, but, but that helps for that. The aesthetic that of that movie kind of is very film. intimate yeah. and kind of. Uh, yeah, it works. Yeah, same with the, yeah. that movie Tangerine that was shot yeah. on a phone. Um, yeah. yeah. So he's really interested in exploring the tech. I think in an interesting way. Yeah. Because he's still looking for interesting stories to pair with the tech. I see other filmmakers like uh, like Peter Jackson, who's just sort of pl- tinkering with digital effects because he can. Mm. Uh, that it's not really contributing to the movie; he's just sort of playing around. Uh, Steven Soderbergh is really uh, trying to do things interesting aesthetically uh, with digital technology and with you know, really complicated scripts. And because he's Steven Soderbergh, he has access to all these wonderful actors yeah. because he's worked with so many of them. Yeah. Uh, so he's always always going to have some pretty uh, pretty good talent in these movies. I really liked No Sudden Move, even cool. though I was uh, really really kind of lost throughout a lot of it. That's okay. That can be fun sometimes. That can mm. be really exhilarating. I, I love Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, even the first time. I liked it the second time when I understood it. Uh, so like I, I, got, I got to interview the screenwriter uh, of, of Tinker, Tinker Tailor Soldier okay. Spy, and my first question was, "What's the movie about?" And his <laughs> and, and and his response was, "Your guess is as good as mine." <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Um, well, let's go. I'll have to check that one out. I, I was mad I didn't yeah, make time for that on, for the uh, podcast. It's on HBO Max. You and, can watch um, that one. Yeah. All right, cool. Let's move on. And uh, so we went from a movie that was incredibly stupid mm. to a movie that was incredibly smart. And now we're going to talk about a movie that is trying to be incredibly smart about how stupid it is. Mm. Let's talk about America the Motion Picture. America the Motion Picture... Um, is uh, fr- directed by Matt Thompson. Is created uh, was made by the creators of Archer and uh, Lord and Miller are producers on it. And uh, this is a story of the Revolutionary War as filtered through uh, somebody who has raised on GI Joe cartoons. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, basically like everything. If you had only gotten the gist of America hmm. through cartoons or something, and like you never actually like paid attention to history class at all. Yeah. And you just, someone got you drunk and said, what was, what happened in America? Mm. And you might get something kind of like this. And there's an undeniable charm to that. There, there's a, a, a clunky charm. And I, I feel like it's, it's punching up. Yeah. Um, a lot oh, of yeah. people, a lot of people are comparing this to team America world police, which, uh, Trey Stone and Matt Parker, or Trey Parker and Matt Stone. I was about to say. Uh, mixed them up. Uh, <laughs> made during uh, the George W. Bush administration. It was about uh, this like team of American mercenaries were... Ascent- they, they blow up the Louvre in the open opening scene of that movie. Yeah, and they're very proud and, uh, and they're very they proud, and it's, and it's this big s- yeah. spoof of big, dumb, uh, action-y Michael Bay movies. Yeah. And it's sold by the fact that everybody is puppets. It's all marionettes. Yeah. Uh, some pretty fun puppet work in that one. But that's punching in all directions. This is a yeah. that was a movie that posited that Kim Jong Il was just as bad as Matt Damon. Uh, yeah, and in that in sort of their ultimate effect on at, world politics. At the time, there was nothing like it, and I think people were really eager to celebrate mm. it, myself included. And looking back now, you realize that there's parts of that movie that are great, and also mm. parts of the movie that are immature yeah. in a bad way. Yeah it's, yeah, it's it's nihilistic in in an unappealing sort of way. And I feel yeah. like America the Motion Picture actually does have a point of view, and I was relieved. Yeah, because it is. So satirizing uh, American ignorance of its own history. That's what I like uh, about yeah. it. And, That's uh, exactly what so I like about it. The, the plot of the movie is uh, a, uh, 
George Washington, who is played by Channing Tatum, is a seven foot tall Adonis. <laughs> and <laughs> and in fact, all of the characters are seven foot tall Adonises, and he's yeah. best friends with Abraham Lincoln. Now, Abraham Lincoln has really <laughs> great ideas for how we're going to save the America from the British and start like a new country. Mm. And and uh, Abe, George Washington is like really supportive of his friend, but he's like the dumb jock mm. who's gonna just like get by and like drink beers while Abraham Lincoln does all the work. But when Abraham Lincoln is, is kill- shot and killed by Benedict Arnold, who is <laughs> a werewolf, who is a werewolf, <laughs> George Washington vows revenge and assembles a super team mm. consisting of Sam Adams as a drunk frat boy played by Jason Matsukas. <laughs> Uh, Paul, his, his beer is so good it will take down England. Uh, who only drink tea, which is a plot point later. <laughs> uh, Paul Revere, who is like the world's greatest horse rider, but is also like uh, extremely lonely and kind mm. of sad. Uh, we've got uh, Geronimo, played by Ra- uh, Raul Trujillo, uh, who is hates all of these fucking people. Yeah. Uh, there's it's like, what, what's the worst thing with America? And he raises his hand. White people take all your shit. <laughs> And they say, oh, no, it's, 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 uh, we have to drink too much tea. White people take all your shit. There's, like, an, amazing, there's an amazing bit. Like it's a recurring theme throughout the, throughout the movie where, um, mm. uh, George Washington has to like, um, you know, sort of explain like why we hate the British. Mm. And it's like, you don't understand something, something, something about taxes. And they're like, yeah, okay. I can agree with something, something that taxes, <laughs> but, uh, we got killer Mike playing, uh, his character's name is blacksmith, but he's clearly inspired by John Henry. Mm. Uh, and, uh, we've also got Olivia Munn as Thomas Edison, who in this version <laughs> is a Chinese woman. <laughs> Which is it? Who will solve things with science, and she'll end up like yeah. flying around, she's, shooting lightning bolts. She's got electro gauntlets yeah. and shit, which is a joke that mm. it's a it's 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 a bit of a left field joke in some respects. Mm. The, the the casting, but it is cool. It, yeah, it's, and uh, and the movie continues apace. It's incredibly crass. Yeah, uh, there's you know there's animated nudity and a lot of extreme violence. Yeah. Uh, we end up getting to meet King George, yeah. who is essentially Baron Vladimir Harkonnen yeah. from Dune. Yeah, yeah. very clearly inspired yeah. by Baron Harkonnen. There's yeah. an amazing my favorite joke in this movie. Uh-huh. There's a lot of well, great was it, jokes. Was it the Johnny Appleseed bit? Because no, that, that, awesome. that killed me. <laughs> What's he doing? Like throwing seeds in people's he, mouths, he, and they he, turn into trees. He, he bites into an apple like it's a grenade. Oh, like he's pulling right. the pin out of a grenade, spits apple seeds <laughs> like a machine gun, <laughs> and they like sprout in people's bodies. It's just oh, all God. that shit's amazing. <laughs> no, my favorite joke. There's this amazing bit where uh, Lincoln's dying words. He says mm. to call the country America, and mm. like George Washington <laughs> has no idea why you'd want to call a country America, and later on when they in order to uh save uh martha washington who's been kidnapped it's played uh, by judy greer yeah uh she's been kidnapped by uh uh benedict arnold uh and but she's being held captive at this mysterious place uh and they need to in order to find it they need to find the gettysburg address so they can find it Um. at that address um and in order to find the gettysburg address uh george washington needs to go to the treehouse that he built with abraham lincoln and do cryptography and this and, and amazing it, sequence that is just literally a shot for shot remake of Hugh Jackman hacking a computer in swordfish. It's the funniest oh joke. Yeah. If you've never seen 
Sword, Hugh Jackman. Sword, Swordfish is a big dumb piece of. Oh my piece of dumb, god! But, uh, it is. It is one of the most misogynistic movies of its era, which is saying something. It's oh golly! Atrociously yeah. gross, mean spirited movie. But uh, there's this amazing sequence in it I, where Hugh Jackman. Yeah is a hacker and it's just him in a room with like 16 computer monitors and he's like tapping on like two different keyboards simultaneously going no 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 yes but they're they're like revolutionary air computers but they look like world war ii enigma machines i know (laughs) it's so fucking funny and at the end (laughs) oh god he comes up with the cipher and he realizes that a is the first letter of the alphabet so a is one and the code is one America, and that's the Gettysburg address. One America Street. One that's America so Street. fucking funny. Oh my god! Uh, you're talking about how the the Tomorrow War is stupid, but it's your kind of stupid. This is my kind of idiocy. This is, a, this is so many people's it's, kind of stupid. Yeah, it, it is. <laughs> it's a very good kind. And, of stupid. and I, I appreciate the dumb humor. I appreciate the crass humor, but more than anything, I do appreciate that point of view. Yeah. That it actually is satirizing something. And, yeah. uh, our, and our vision of America's greatness is yeah. based on a lot of ignorance uh, and yeah. a lot of eagerness to overlook reality. Yeah. And and uh, and it ends pr- in not. I won't say perfectly. I wish there had actually been a little bit more pointed satire. Yeah, uh, but at the end they do bring up some important things. Um, yeah. and I think in the middle this, they do too. Yeah. They, I'll, yeah, I'll say this: this would have played a lot better during the George W. Bush administration. Oh, I think we would have been I very feel, eager for this. In uh, yeah, I, I feel yeah. like this is a kind of satire that it feels a little bit dated. Mm-hmm. Like that is the flavor of satire is a little bit yeah. dated. Um, the uh, after the Trump administration, there's so much more that can that we uh, can criticize. Yeah, uh, a, a lot more openly because yeah. it was just sort of laid out bare during the last presidential yeah. administration. Our concerns about American jingoism mm. aren't that we're ignorant of our history and eager to over-aggrandize. We do that too. Mm. Our concerns are the after effects of that, which aren't yeah, really the, addressed here. Yeah, the after effects of it, and also a lot of. Uh, like the racist basis of a lot of uh, yeah. American uh, Again, America's founding, which is, which is addressed here, but it, as it stands, like it still feels like today, it could be addressed a lot more, yeah, and we'll probably have a you know, there's a lot more, yeah. a, a much more wicked version of this that would feel a lot more timely. As it yeah. stands, this is a little bit more, it's a lot more broad a satire, yeah. which I still really enjoy. I actually yeah. laughed a lot during this thing, and. It, and I like the things that it was saying, but it it doesn't feel like timely or up to date. No, it it feels in fact a, a little bit dated as a result. Yeah, but uh, when it works, it works yeah. beautifully. Yeah, and and, and it it's is just really funny. The, sometimes. A lot of the the comedy is just sublime. I love Jason Mansukas just in general. He's a genius. <laughs> and uh, oh, Sergio, uh, Luca. No, it's Sergio. No, he's There's Luca. Luca. Oh, his oh, ears flopped yeah, over. Yeah, it's cute. Man, I love it when he does that. Yeah, kitty. We both miss Sergio. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. We both miss him very, very much. Yeah. But we do have Luca still. Luca, he, he, Luca. He, he, he reminded me of Sergio when he, because Sergio would roll yeah. in that way. We, uh, we we had to move Luca's uh, cat tree, you know, his fur cover, little mm. tear, um, uh, closer to where we podcast because mm. he was getting lonely over there. And now that it's over here, he's almost always right next to us when we podcast. And he's, <laughs> he's just like within a good arm's time. reach right now. Yeah, he's just so sweet. Mm. And he just sleeps. I think he likes here listening listening to us talk. I oh. hope not everyone listens. I hope if you're listening to this podcast, you're not asleep. Or if you are asleep, that you're like in mm. bed or on your couch or yeah. something. Whatever you do, if we're putting you to sleep, pull over. <laughs> Stop driving, <laughs> okay. please. But America, the motion picture yeah. is, a, is a good one. They released it on July 4th weekend, which is perfect on Netflix, timing on Netflix. Yeah. And um, 
Yeah, I really like the cast. Uh, I like all of these really bonkers conceits. Uh, one of the plots is uh, you can you can turn someone into a Brit by steeping them in tea. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, yeah, the, the, this idea of um, our, our own ignorance of our own history is something that really needs to be addressed all the time. Agreed. And, uh, repeatedly, and this is a film that yeah. does it quite I, well. I hope it's not doing it. I hope it's not doing it in a way that can be easily discounted if you are. Ignorant about history. I don't think anyone's going to take their history from this movie, but I hope people realize that <laughs> not, not with the RoboCop centaur. No, <laughs> although that shit's awesome. Yeah. Uh, no, I hope th- I, I would hope that's not the case. And I can't imagine it realistically it would be. But what I also hope is that people aren't watching this and going, <laughs> yeah, America is great. I hope people mm. I hope that the moments where they pause the comedy long enough to make a point mm. Uh, aren't being lost amidst the tidal wave of torrential silly humor. Okay. Uh, so that's my that's a bit of a concern because it's important when you're making a satire that it not be confused for the real thing. I mean, when, when there, there's you know, like like I said, RoboCop Centaur in a Revolutionary War film, I think it would read. But again, well, but again, uh, what's what's the RoboCop Centaur represent? It represents mm-hmm. an actual figure in American history who mm-hmm. is lionized, who is cre- treated as a larger than life heroic figure. So we're just making them more larger than life and heroic. And if you're not thinking about what that represents, you might just say to yourself, America really is cool. I'm not saying everyone's doing that. Maybe no one's doing that. I'm saying that's my hope. Is that if you're watching this movie, you are not just preaching a stupid humor, but you are thinking about what it is saying about how we deify Mm. so much of our history, so many people in our history that were completely unwilling to consider their flaws and indeed the flaws of this nation. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's important and I think it can't be lost. And if it is lost, that would be a major defect in the film. Uh, but I saw it and I hope it's taken the right way. Right. Anyway, we got one more film left and it's called God exists. Her name is Petrunia. God exists. Her name is Petrunia. Uh, this is a, a, a Macedonian film uh, and it is, um, it takes place in a, a very small town that has a very odd annual ritual with that is, um, the local religious leader stands on this bridge next to like a, a shallow lake and all of the men have taken off their shirts and greased themselves up and they're ready to go and uh, they throw a little ceramic cross off the bridge. The men all race forward to grab it and whoever grabs it of uh, whoever's on one bank or the other of the bridge gets to keep it for the year. And they're like sort of it's like a not Hatfields and McCoys, but there's like two tribes, as it were, in this town. Mm-hmm. They're not at war, but one gets across and they get to sort of gloat it over. So the it's the two high schools in town and they compete every mm-hmm. Thanksgiving for the turkey tussle. Uh, more or less. Mm-hmm. Um Zorika Nusheva plays the character Petrunia. She is uh, an adult. She's still living at home with her mom. Her mom dotes on her. She's having trouble finding a job. Uh, there's a rather shocking scene early in the movie where she is just rather casually sexually assaulted. Oh my God. Just to show like how bad women have it in this town. Yeah. And uh, during this ritual where the, the priest throws the cross off the bridge, she actually runs forward and grabs it first. She gets the cross and the men say, you're not allowed to have it. They wrench it out of her hands and says, that's mine. And she says, no, I got it. And it turns out that women just through tradition's sake, aren't allowed to partake in this ritual. Mm. She did it just on a whim. She just sort of took her shirt off, ran into the lake and grabbed it because why not? She's got nothing else going on right now. Yeah. What do you got to lose at that point? And that sparks off this weird legal battle with uh, lawyers and priests and cops as to who is the rightful owner of this cross. The cross is meaningless. It doesn't have any kind of religious significance other than the fact that it's a cross. 
Uh, it doesn't like, bestow upon uh, yeah, you it does, power. It doesn't give anything. you power. It doesn't give you say. Yeah. Uh, it, it doesn't care. It's not valuable. It's just a ceramic cross. It's only symbolic. And she begins getting abuse from the local police, uh, some of whom want to protect her, some of whom want to uh, arrest her. Uh, both of the tribes are willing to pretty much kill her. They want to break into the police station at one point where she's hiding out so they can get the cross and then you know, punish her for uh, spe- for just doing something that she wasn't allowed to do. And uh, there's also been a re- there's also a reporter floating around to report on this story, and she finds uh, the reporter finds that there's a lot of just she's trying to put on camera the systemic sexism that's been going on in this little Macedonian town through this ritual. When does this and take place again? Th- this is present day. It's present day. Yeah. Second year. Okay. Yeah. Um, it, uh, it's a really interesting, uh, dissection of sexism in systemic sexism, uh, in, in, not just in Macedonia, just in general, uh, in showing that there really is nothing at stake for the oppressors. Oppression is the point. Having power over someone else is the whole point of all of this. And Petrunia doesn't give up and she doesn't become sort of like this, uh, inhuman martyr who's standing up for a cause. She she is standing up for her cause because she believes in what she's doing, but she's also uh, just a, a regular human being. She doesn't have a big speech. She understands mm. what she's doing, but she expresses it in the way she can express it. Yeah. So I really, really like her. She's yeah. bringing a lot of humanity to this role that could uh, turn into something a little bit inhuman. Yeah. Uh, it, the reporter is, is the one who's giving like all of the obvious stuff. She's essentially just speaking the themes of the film out loud. And I could have yeah. done without that part of it. Okay. I think it's strong enough without it. And then it doesn't really end. Oh, <clears throat> there's no real like conclusion to this. Um, yeah. There's this big, big to do over this cross. Uh, a lot of tensions mount. And then, People just sort of walk away. Sounds like and a bit of a cop. Is it? A, does that feel like a cop out? It's not a cop out. Like there's, there's no okay. solution at the end of it. It's okay. just sort of like can, right. can, it just sort of ends in an unsatisfying sort of way. And that was a little um, bit upsetting. But at the same time, to have a solution to systemic systemic sexism in this town would, no matter what you do, would feel bad. Well, there's a difference between solving the world's problems and mm. ending a sequence of events in a satisfying way. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't. I would I would love a solution to all of the world's problems. Please don't do not get me wrong. But if if we can't figure that out while writing a screenplay to a movie, I at least want like the characters to end their story in a way that feels satisfying after I mm. after the lights go up. You know, like I don't think that's too much to ask. Does it? So does so the fact that the the ending is dissatisfying, it, as you put it, isn't a deal breaker. It's not a deal breaker okay. because there, it's a, it's about interesting things and it's got a lot of interesting things on its mind and, and the lead is really, really good. Um, I feel like this would might've played better as a short, uh, that it, as a feature, like if it was a 40 minute film. I think all of the themes would be like a little bit more tightly encapsulated. Mm. Uh, it, it's not that it sprawls or is unfocused. It's just, um, I think a little, they weren't able to get a bigger story out of this and, uh, they probably could have gone something even larger, like get it, the local government involved mm-hmm. or even the United Nation gets involved over this little trifling ritual that doesn't mean anything. It sounds like it'd be like borderline satire. It sounds like yeah, it at, at like some that. point you could even go that far with a yeah, story like, like this, kind of, but yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it, I think they just sort of, I don't, I don't want to say they ran out of ideas, but they weren't able to sort of put a, a satisfying conclusion okay. on it. All right, well, um, all right, well, that's it for our new releases this week. Uh, let's do our review roundup. Mm-hmm. 
We review our films on the critically acclaimed scale. Once again, that scale is from C- to C+. The lowest the movie can get is a C-, that is below average. Generally speaking, we don't recommend it, but there's a lot of wiggle room in there from it's just not very good to the worst movie ever made. Uh, C is average. Most movies are average. There's some good. There's some bad. Fair enough. And then there's C+, which is above average. We generally mm. recommend the movie. Could be everything from we quite like it to the best movie ever made. Uh, on that scale, how does God exist? Mm. Her name is Petrunia. I'm going to give it a high C. Uh, okay. I, 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 I like what it was doing. I just wish it had done done a little bit more. All right. Uh, what about America, the motion picture? I, I give it a C plus. Okay. Uh, I just I laughed and I like laughed pretty consistently throughout yeah. this thing. It's really funny. I'm, I'm going to give it C plus just for the ratio of hit to misses on the jokes, which are yeah. pretty impressive. There are some jokes that fall flat to me. There is some punching downward once in a while. Thought that was kind of annoying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, but, but, but generally, it's ge- yeah. the the hits. The hits are so big that the misses don't piss me off too much. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, I I just I just hope its message comes across. But I did mm-hmm. enjoy it quite a bit. I think it's very very funny. Uh, no sudden move. No sudden move. Uh, a, a C plus. A C plus. Okay. N- not a perfect yeah. film, but yeah, yeah, definitely a recommend. Awesome. Uh, the Tomorrow War. That's a C minus. Okay. I don't like the Tomorrow War. You can, uh, I think you can skip it. I'm, I'm going to give it a C. <laughs> it's right. a stupid, but it's an inoffensive kind of stupid. It's just a big, dumb sci-fi action, dumb movie, <laughs> and it's got enough panache, and it doesn't like really drag very much for me. I had an amusing time watching this silly trifle of a movie, uh, but no, it's not great. Uh, Fear Street, 1994. Um, I. It's like, like you said, it started out in such a clunky way that I was sort of not really sure what to think of it. But mm. when the characters started to solidify, I actually really started to like this movie. Yeah. Uh, in a way I didn't expect. I'm really looking forward to the, the additional chapters. Yeah, me too. And, and, uh, I think it handles queer representation perfectly, mm. which is, you know, really important, yeah. uh, to me personally. But, uh, so, so I, a C plus. I'll give it a C plus. Okay. I like yeah, it. I'm, I'm, I like it. I'm with you. I think it takes a while to find its footing, but once it does, mm. it's good. I think just the first, even half, maybe even two thirds, can be a bit of a mixed bag. But it all comes together so well that I can't not give it a C plus. And I'm really excited uh, to see how the sequels are going to pan out mm. and to see how this thing comes together. Uh, and we'll find out next week. Uh, next up, uh, oh, and then lastly, the Forever Purge, which only I saw. Mm. Um, that's a C plus. It's not the best film in the franchise. Uh, I think there's some definite elements that it could have handled better, but as a sort of sci-fi parable about the fall of America and what happens when everyone realizes that they don't have to pretend they're not assholes, mm-hmm. that the entire country just stops having any ideals and f- falls into chaos, anarchy, and violence. Mm, that sounds uh, kind of kind of salient. It's doesn't pretty. It, yeah. It's it, it, salient. It's it's salient alone. Mm. You got to give it bonus points for it just because it's so confrontational and so upfront yeah. about everything else that some people are really afraid to engage with. Uh, but on top of it all, it's an exciting thriller. The cast is really quite good. Um, yeah, it, it's not my favorite in the series, but it is a good entry. And I, I this this series this uh, series pushes my buttons. I yeah, love that we yeah. have a franchise I, I do that like is the this series in your I've, face. I've, uh, I've, I, it's a pity that I missed this one. I wish yeah. I could have seen it. But, okay. yeah. Well, we well, got a chance at some point. 
All right, so that is it for Critically Acclaimed this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll be back next week with reviews of Fear Street 1978, I think it's the next one. Fear Street 78. Yeah, uh, uh, and also uh, Black Widow, the new uh, Marvel superhero movie, and probably some other stuff as well. Mm. Um, so uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, if you would like to be part of the conversation here at Critically Acclaimed, there's a couple of ways to do that. You can email us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Uh, and we might read your email on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. So feel free to talk to us about anything we discussed in this episode, questions you want us to answer, uh, questions about uh, movie recommendations, history of cinema, anything you want, really. Sometimes we just answer silly stuff. Whatever people want to talk about, we try to find time for. Uh, we're also on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Don't forget if, our P.O. Uh, box. Yeah, if if uh, email is just too quick and convenient for you, I'll write it on a piece of paper. Uh, and and mail it to us. Uh, I, I I like mail. I'm old enough to remember getting letters and uh, just for fun. Yeah, just like from friends. Random we people just, just wrote, like, wrote letters to each other. Um, yeah. So write us in. Uh, the critically acclaimed network, PO Box six four one five six five, Los Angeles, California nine double six four. And uh, also, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, we owe a massive debt of gratitude uh, to all of our patrons, mm. uh, without whom. This show and all the other shows of this network would not exist. Uh, and uh, to those patrons, we try to give as many exclusive uh, shows as we can. So if you have the means and you want to join the Patreon, you can get a lot of stuff. You can vote for future episodes of our shows. Uh, you can uh, listen to our Holy Batman podcast. We're reviewing every single 1960s Batman. There's our uh, Oscars podcast, Only the Best. We're reviewing every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. Uh, we have the All Our Yesterdays podcast. We're reviewing every single installment of Star Trek. Uh, we just started uh, reviewing the movies. And then in a couple of episodes, we're going to start uh, Next Generation because we're doing it all in order. Mm. Uh, we have commentary tracks. We recently did a two-part commentary track for Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet because that thing is four hours long. <laughs> so, yeah, it's two commentaries. And uh, sometime this month, we're going to do a commentary track for Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie. We also uh, are going to start uh, doing a regular... Uh, patreon hangouts online hangouts with some of our members uh we would love to see you there mm -hmm. um this would be every month now we were doing them like every couple of months before but we're, we're upping the ante on that so um that's not the right term but anyway um anyway there's a lot there hopefully uh uh if you want to sign up you can enjoy the stuff there if you can't afford to do that leave us a review wherever you find us that really helps us out a lot star rating a couple sentences whatever's convenient for you we're not asking for a lot uh, and uh, if you don't want to do that, that's fine too. Hey, you're cool. Don't you worry about that. That's all. That's all <laughs> awesome. Uh, if you want to check out our Etsy store, uh, me and M. Lapis da Silva, we have an Etsy store over. It's uh, it's called Salt Cat Soap, all one word, uh, and it is a bunch of handcrafted soaps designed mostly by my by M. Lapis da Silva. And we just dropped a whole bunch of really exciting new designs. Uh, the new designs are all her this month, uh, but I'm particularly fond of, there's a watermelon slice bar, which is really, really uh, nice and summery. Uh, there's also a lesbian vampire bar, which is uh, inspired by uh, the novel Carmilla. Uh, so if you're a horror fan, we hope you check that out. That one's really cool. It smells amazing. Um, so um, yeah, all that's there. So uh, you can also follow Salt Cat Soap on Instagram and Twitter at Salt Cat Soap. Look for the uh, image of Luca. And um, that's it. Right? That's it. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening, and never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what?